welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMALOTM. This week we're going over UFC 259. We got a triple header of title fights here. We got the light heavyweight title fight uh, between Jan Blachowicz and Erzurl Adesanya. We got the women's featherweight scrap between Amanda Nunes and Megan Anderson. And then the one that I'm looking forward to the most is the bantamweight strap between Pyotr Jan and Aljamain Sterling. Absolute fire fight. I cannot wait for this card. There are so many amazing fights on this card. Alexander Rakic versus Thiago Santos. Um, Joseph Benavides against Askar Askarov. Dominic Cruz against Casey Kenny. Just bangers after bangers after bangers not to mention the return of, of uh, islam Mahachev going up against the streaking drew dober very very impressive uh, or very very intriguing fight i should say but this card is littered with great fights as of me recording this fight we have 15 fights scheduled for this weekend probably by fight time it's going to go down to like 13 or 12 but hopefully we don't lose anything from the main card and hopefully we don't you lose some of those uh prelim bangers as well too but very very fun card coming up i can't wait to break it down for you guys well i've already broken it down for you guys you guys will see it very very shortly but uh yeah very much looking forward to this fight these this pay-per-view is probably going to be one of the best of the year and we've only had a couple pay-per-views thus far so very much looking forward to seeing this one and seeing how these title fights uh shape out as well too all right let's get into the betting recap of ufc vegas 20 which was last weekend uh and we had another losing event man it's uh, this year has been tough it's been a very, very tough year, uh, especially with the lock of the night plays going one and six this year. The only one hitting was Kamar Usman. But um, yeah, I, I want to distance myself as much as possible from like January because I felt like the, the lock of the night plays that I made there were just very poor. Again, I've already talked about this. I've gone over it again. But like these last two plays or last three plays, including the, the Kamar Usman one as well, I, I don't regret them at all. Like these are high level fighters that are going out there and, you know, just just shit happening the Curtis Blades one not mad at that again I got the inside the distance line at minus 167 so I thought I got a great line there very low percentage outcome that happens with Mr. Uh, Derek Lewis getting the knockout there but about UFC Vegas 20 uh let's talk about the one win first and foremost I had 0.5 units on Alexis Davis at plus 173 that cashes for 0.87 units wish I went harder on that one you know I mean my my women's MMA calls this year have been absolutely fire like that's the only bright spot of my 2021 so far is i've i'm seven and one on women's mma fights uh for plus 12.5 units or something like that for 150 percent roi so maybe i should focus more so on uh, on the women's maybe wlotn women's lock of the night i don't know but uh yeah that's been really the only bright spot everything else has pretty much gone to shit so uh, let's talk about the other dog plays that I had. I had one unit on Montana De La Rosa at plus 117 against Myra Bueno Silva. That ends up going to a draw. Can't be mad at that. Um, you know, Bueno Silva does a decent job of keeping the fight on the feet and doing some good work from there. Uh, the Kevin Kroon fight. I uh, had one unit at plus 175 against Caceres. Man, that one looked bad. You know, uh, Kevin Kroon's cardio has always looked good uh, based off of everything that I've seen off of tape. So to see him have as much of a cardio dump as he had in that fight against Caceres was very, very embarrassing. You know what I mean? I'm, I, I don't like betting on guys that have cardio issues. That's just, that's almost like number one on my list in terms of when I have, a ch- uh, when I'm looking for, you know, people to bet on. You got to have cardio. And his cardio was just absolutely horrendous that night. And uh, yeah, so we lose one unit there. 
also minus two units on uh, Alexander Hernandez. Props and hats off to Tiago Moises for you know implementing that calf kick right off the bat and just making it a very very tough night for Hernandez. Um, I think once the the calf kick really starts to you know set in for for Hernandez. Uh, you know, he was pretty much debilitated at that point. We saw Thiago Moises have a ton of success on the feet, and uh, that 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 very much did surprise me at the time. Um, Pre-tape, I, I don't, or sorry, pre-fight, I don't regret the shot. You know, what I mean, I, I just didn't expect to see Thiago Moises come with that type of game plan. Uh, but yeah, I will definitely step off of Alexander Hernandez a little bit more moving forward. So. Um, yeah, minus two units there, and then obviously the lock of the night play was a parlay between Magomed on Kalaev, goes out there, does what he does, probably should have just made him my parlay, or my lock of the night play straight, uh, and then uh, Jimmy Rivera, uh, minus 144, he was the second leg of the parlay, and uh, yeah, again, the, the, the calf kicks absolutely fuck us that night, uh, Pedro Munoz gets it going right off the bat, I truly expected to see, you know, Jimmy Rivera either able to check those, or, you know, get out of the way of those uh, and truly get his boxing game going because he needs his movement. He needs that ability to move in and out of, uh, you know, pocket exchanges and then pivoting off of these combinations. But Pedro Munoz did a good job of just sticking with it and, uh, you know, really making it difficult for Rivera to get his game off. And yeah, I don't regret it to the to, to the biggest extent. You know, you know, there's a reason I put four units on, on instead of five. Uh, I was very, very um, confident in Rivera in the spot. Um, but, you know, great game plan from Pedro Munoz. He comes back, avenges that loss from earlier in his career against Jimmy Rivera. But, uh, yeah, we end up minus 6.13 units on the night. Just not a, not a good look. Um, you know, we did have a... Yeah, it, it's been a tough little run. Um, I've already talked about how I want to switch up my 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 approach. You know I mean? I'm going uh, old school lock of the night on, on these people now. And one thing I want to say is that, like... Back in the day when I was like starting this off and had that early success, it was just completely unhindered by what I was hearing from the community or when I was involving myself in all these Twitter discussions and, and kind of being pressured by other guys from being like, this is a square bet. You know, I mean, if you're betting a minus 230, even if it cashes, it's a square bet, but it cashes. And that's what I'm looking at at the, at the end of the day. So, you know, when I was killing the game, it was like, you know, cashing between minus 180s and minus 285s on a regular basis. But I felt like I was getting scared away from that stuff just to seem a little bit sharper than, you know, than, than I am compared to some of these other guys that are like really good at, you know, calling these minus 120s, minus 130 favorites. Now, I'm pretty decent with my underdogs as well, right? Like the underdogs have been coming pretty, pretty solid for me as of late, but it's the closer line fights that are kind of fucking me. So, um, yeah, m moving forward, I'm, I'm probably just doing one lock of the night play for, you know, either 3.5 to 5 units on it, and then uh, just, a, just a dog of the night play between 1 and 2 units on those spots as well, too. So, yeah, that's that's the lock of the night approach. We're going old school on these bitches, and, and I'm hoping that it's going to get us back onto the right track, you know, get back to those 7, 8, 9 event winning streaks, and uh, yeah do what I do, which is finding the lock of the night plays, regardless of the odds. Obviously, I'll never bet anything worse than minus 350, but because I just set that limit myself. But that's the approach that I'm going to be going moving forward. And hopefully it turns things around for us. Because man, this was a this was a tough uh, start to the year, uh, tough first two months, but I'm looking to turn around here at UFC 259. And I got all the motivation in the world. I got a really good lock of the night play already lined up. I believe you guys will figure it out once I talk about it on this uh 
on this podcast and break down that specific fight. And I really like the dog of the night play I have as well. So really, really looking forward to UFC 259 this week. And I think I got some really good spots and I'm hoping that I can capitalize on it as well too. All right, uh, before we get into the breakdowns, a couple plugs that I want to do right off the bat. Um, the, the Patreon, obviously, uh, don't want to tout it too much at this point in time. Again, my picks are always free. They drop on Fridays, but uh, the Patreon is there if you want early access to the breakdowns. Uh, picks as soon as I drop them and as soon as I place them, because obviously the lines probably won't be the same come the day that I drop it to the public. Uh, got a great Discord community as well, too. Everybody's super supportive, super helpful. Uh, you know, they drop other plays as well, too. So shout out to those guys. Um and uh, the the best bets and props article as well too, which is uh, pretty much going through every single fight, giving you the best bet and the best prop. And now something that I added as of last week was a confidence rating on it as well too. So given that I'll be giving out less uh, official plays moving forward, I wanted to add a confidence rating on these bets that I'm putting in that article to at least give people an idea of, okay, if I was betting more, these are the other spots that I'd probably be hitting. So, uh, yeah, I think people are really finding that helpful, and I'm really looking forward to seeing how it pans out moving forward. So, Patreon, uh, the link is in the description below. Five bucks a month, ton of value in my opinion. We'll never change it from five bucks a month. I do have a ten dollar tier, which is tier, which is no different than the than the five dollar one, other than just if you guys want to be a little bit more generous and you appreciate you guys' work, all the hard work that I'm putting into this thing. Uh, so I appreciate you guys uh, checking out the Patreon. And then secondly, my affiliation agreement with CoolBet. Uh, if you guys sign up with CoolBet.com, use the promo code MMALOTN2. That's the number two. You guys get a 100% matched bonus uh, on your initial deposit up to 200 bucks. Now, this isn't available in the States. It's just... Um, uh, Canada, and I believe a bunch of Scandinavian countries as well too, but I love this site. I, I make most of my bets on this site. They have great odds. You're able to parlay props. They got a ton of great props as well too, uh, but I love cool bets, uh, cool bet I should say, and uh, they've been nothing but great to me. Got a great response thus far with the affiliation code, so I hope to keep it going. So if you guys are looking for a new bookie and you guys are in Canada or some of the other countries, again, it's all listed in the description below so you guys can get some more information there. Um, yeah, check out Coolbet, coolbet.com, promo code MMALOTN2. All right, let's pretty much wrap on everything that I want to get out in this intro. Let's get into the, the breakdowns. I hope to help you guys out and cast some bets this week and enjoy the breakdowns. Mario Bautista versus Trevin Jones. We got minus 240 on Bautista and plus 200 on Trevin Jones. Let's start off on the Bautista side of things, who I believe opened around that minus 130 to minus 150 range, and we got some heavy, heavy love on him pretty much right off the bat, and it makes sense. The kid is an absolute beast. He's 8-1 in his career. He's 27 years old, and his only loss, I believe, came on short notice against Corey Sandhagen, uh, where it was his first UFC fight, short notice, like I said, but he was just completely outmatched and outskilled at that point in time. Corey Sandhagen, as we all know, just an absolute monster and a beast, so not the worst loss to have on your record. Then he goes out there and has a performance, or sorry, a fight of the night against Jin Su Sun. A great fight where, you know, both guys were swinging leather at each other. Both, guy la both guys landing big shots. But we saw the, the, the more damaging and the more versatile shots from Bautista, who just uses all eight of his limbs to, to the best of its abilities. You know, great Muay Thai striker, great elbows, great knees, especially his knee up the middle, which is what he ended up catching Miles Johns with. Just absolute beauty. I believe it was a flying knee ultimately, but throughout that first round, we saw him land that knee almost at will, and uh, it, it paid dividends for him uh, later in that fight where he was able to knock out uh, um, Miles Johns in that second round. 
came into that fight as a plus 115 underdog. And even in the Jin Su Sun fight, comes in as a plus 150 underdog. But now, you know, the bookies and the public are starting to give Bautista the respect I believe he deserves. And I think this is a pretty well-matched up fight for him against Trevin Jones. Now, I think that the majority of Bautista's wins, uh, um, well, not the majority, I'm saying, the, the most likely path to victory is for Bautista to go out there and, and cruise to a possible decision uh, decision victory. But I think if he gets a submission game going, he can give Trevin Jones some trouble here, as I believe that he's not going to be ready for uh, what Bautista has to bring to him. You know, a great striking game, like I said, from Bautista. He uses his range very well. His kicks are very good too, but his volume is definitely up there as well, which is where I think he's going to give Trevin Jones problems. So maybe we see a, a desperate shot from Trevin Jones where maybe he gives up his back or something like that, but um, I think he's ultimately going to be um, forced to shoot here against Bautista, who should definitely have him covered in the jiu-jitsu realm. Now, Bautista is one of those guys out of the MMA lab who's, tracing, uh, who's training with guys like Casey Kenny and Kyler Phillips, who are both also fighting on this card. So having guys all peak at the same time, uh, you know, going up against high-level competition, Casey Kenny going up against Dominic Cruz, Kyler Phillips going up against Song Yudong, and Albario Bautista going up against Trevin Jones, uh, I think these guys will bring the best out of each other to truly peak on that night and, and go out and get a very dominant victory. So I like what we see from Bautista, a very, uh, you know, aggressive striker, uh, he doesn't really give his opponents the, the the comfortability of just you know getting getting ready and, and getting set into a fight he's going to push his game he's going to push his game plan and uh, r really get you thinking about okay should I get my strikes off or should I just try to counter this guy but while you're thinking that he's probably going to hit you with a couple shots as well too so I, I like Bautista in this fight. I completely understand why he's a minus 240 favorite. I think he's worth parlaying as well, too. Uh, he should add decent enough value to your to your plays. Uh, because Trevin Jones on the other side, I'm not the most, you know, impressed with the guy. He's 12 and 6. Um, you know, coming over from the Guam senior, I believe he's fought an ACA a couple times, ACB, as well as um Top FC, which is a Korean organization. He's been all over the place, right? He's definitely gathered a, a good amount of experience. But, you know, throughout all that experience, we don't truly see, you know, a, a fighter that I believe was going to reach the top 15, which I believe that Bautista will if he hasn't already. Um, obviously, we, we know Trevin Jones coming in on short notice against Timur Val Valiev, where we saw Valiev hurt him to the body early, almost get him out of there, and then absolutely blows his wad, trying to get Jones out of there. And then in that second round, he's just way too tired, and we see Jones take advantage of that and put him out in that second round. So good win for him there. However... Gets overturned to a no contest, and I believe it was due to a positive marijuana test. And you know, I hate that they do that to guys that are coming in on short notice and almost doing the UFC a favor, and then you know they they get fucked over because you know they maybe smoked weed even before they signed the contract, right? Same thing with um, Kevin Kroom when he beat Roosevelt Roberts, took that fight on super short notice, test positive for weed after that, and they take away his win. So. Uh, very unfortunate there for for Kroom and for Jones, but uh, you know, given what I've seen from the regional scene of Trevor uh, Trevin Jones, he seems a little bit too lackadaisical in terms of letting his opponent set the pace. Uh, you know, I think Bautista will continuously move forward, uh, really put it on Jones, really uh, you know pressure him, not let Jones get his game off. And I think the only way Jones truly wins this fight is if he hail Mary KOs Bautista here. I don't think he's going to out-wrestle him. I don't think he's going to out-jujitsu him. Nor do I think he's going to out-strike him or outpace him. So I think Bautista pretty much has him covered everywhere here. And I think Bautista is truly coming into his own now. Like the guy's fully realizing his potential. Um, again, training with the killers that he is in at the MMA lab. Um, I think he's a high-level guy. And this is just another stepping stone for him to kind of reach that uh, 
that 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 pinnacle of his talent and uh, Trevin Jones is just a, another guy in the way and uh, this should be probably one of his easier fights I believe like out of Miles Johns and Jinsu Sun I'd say Jones is the third guy there right like at least Sun I believe he he has the durability he keeps moving forward he's going to make it a difficult fight for you because he's going to walk through all the shots that you're throwing at him right just watch this pure pure Yan fight the guy just did not back down no matter what Yan was throwing at him uh, and then Maz John, you know, limited fighter, but it, you know, he was undefeated going into that fight with Bautista, and Bautista just absolutely put it on him. So I'm expecting the same thing here. Uh, he's going to have a two inch height advantage as well, while he'll be at a one inch reach disadvantage. But I think we'll see that 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 height advantage ex- um, exaggerate uh, that that distance management, given how effective Bautista is with his strikes, uh, his range management, and then just pretty much everything in his game so i'm expecting a complete domination here from bautista i think he wins this fight uh let's say via decision no you know what i'm going to say via submission uh first round i think he just puts it on jones ends up getting this fight into the grappling situation and pulls off a submission so i'm going bautista first round submission alan cruz versus urosh medic we got minus 165 on urosh medic and plus 145 on alan cruz who's making his second walk to the octagon so Let's uh, start off with the Alan Cruz side of things, who's coming off that loss to Spike Carla last time around where he got knocked out. I believe it was just over a minute uh, worth of a fight, but we truly didn't get to see what Cruz really brings to the table, especially what we saw uh, from him on the contender series and even prior in his career as well, right? Uh, Very good fighter from the outside, very long and lanky, six foot with a 78 inch reach, originally fighting at featherweight, but now he's coming up to lightweight. So I'm interested to see how he looks uh, a little bit more filled out, you know, a little bit more weight on him as well, too, and how that translates translates him and his performance. Another change for Alan Cruz is he's moved his training camp from Tampa Bay all the way over to Vegas. And now he trains at Extreme Couture under the great mastermind, uh, uh, Damn, I can't remember the guy's first name, but I know his last name is Nick Sick. <laughs> um, but Chris, I want to say, completely off on that. But either way, Coach Nick Sick, um, doing a really good job with the guys over there at Extreme Couture. And obviously, getting a guy like Alan Cruz under your wing, uh, I'm sure he could do a lot of good things with this guy, given his frame, given the experience that he's already accrued, and how well he uses his distance, right? You're talking about a guy who's six foot with a 78 inch reach at lightweight. 78 inches. That's insane. There's a lot of guys that he has even a longer reach than in like the light heavyweight and heavyweight division. So it could definitely be a problem uh, for most of his opponents if he's able to use it effectively. And from what I've been seeing in his last fights, he has been using it very effectively. I, obviously, it didn't work out for him in the Spike Carlisle fight. He was rocked right off the bat after... Um, like if you guys watch the head kick that initially started the finishing sequence it looks like he thought he had raised his guard high enough to uh block the shot unfortunately for him spike carlisle lands it clean just on his temple and you see alan cruz's eyes go all over the place and that's where spike uh you know jumps on the opportunity to go for the finish and he successfully gets the finish now this is a fight where alan cruz went into uh it as a minus 200 favorite and now he's coming into this fight as a plus 145 favorite. So it just shows you like the whole like, what have you done for me lately type of thing that we have in MMA, especially with MMA betting. There's so many guys that go in there as a as decent favorite, they get knocked the hell out and then people just throw them away. It reminds me of that like Toy Story meme where the kids, you know, has one toy, but he's dropping the other toy. And that's what it feels like happening right now 
with Urosh Medic, who's the the new toy, the 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 fancy new toy, compared to Alan Cruz, who just for some reason nobody really respects as much anymore because he got knocked out last time. Now, if you go, uh, I, I forgot who it was. I want to shout out. I believe it was Gugabe, uh, who had originally said that you usually get a good return on guys that are coming off of first round knockouts, especially if it was their first, like their UFC debut or their second fight in the in the UFC. More often than not, you're getting a much better price for them next time around because most people are expecting them to go out there and get knocked out once again. But that doesn't really seem to be the case. The two that really come to mind for me are obviously Jake Collier when he got knocked out by Aspinall and then he comes in against uh, Gian Vellante as a, heavy, a sizable underdog. And then same with uh, Parker Porter. He gets knocked out by Chris Dalkis, comes in as a sizable underdog against Josh Breezen, and both those guys pull off the win. Obviously, there's a much other cases out there where you can uh, make an argument for the other side, but I feel like it's very important here against Alan Cruz and uh, uh, Urosh Medic, who I believe that Cruz is actually the better fighter here. He's arguably gone up against much better competition, even though most of their uh, fights have happened on the regional scene, but having a win over a guy like Steve Garcia and um, and Nguyen as well, um, much more outranks whatever Urush has seen in the cage, right? You guys know that I like to fade guys that come out of Alaska FC, and Urush is definitely one of those guys. And to fade him at plus money, I'm, I might be there on the, on the cruise train. Now, how much did uh, Cruz truly lose in, in terms of durability by getting knocked out by Spike Carlisle? Because his two losses before that were via submission. He never got knocked out. Uh, from what I've seen, he never really got dropped or anything on, on the tape that I've been able to run. So I think that Spike Carlisle fight was almost a bit of an, an anomaly. Whereas Urush Medic, we've only seen this guy for, an, uh, what, the longest fight he's ever been in is like five uh, five minutes and 51 seconds, like just a minute into the second round. We've never seen him even further into that, right? So th there's a lot of question marks about how his cardio will look the further the fight goes on. Now we're talking about a, a camp change for Alan Cruz. Same thing for Urosh, Urosh Medic. Medic goes from Alaska, now he's training down at King's MMA. And obviously that's a very good change for him to get much better training partners and different looks. And, you know, maybe he was the, the, the king the, the line of his gym up there in Alaska. But when you go down to Kings MMA and you're training with guys like Calvin Gaslam and Benio Dariush on the regular, you're definitely not the king in the gym anymore. So he's definitely going to need to do that. I'm assuming the same thing will happen with Alan Cruz. So I'm very much intrigued to see how uh, both guys approach this fight with new training camps. Now, Roche Medic, last time around, we saw him in the contender series where he came in as a very slight favorite over Mikey Gonzalez. And Gonzalez just came in with this crazy Taekwondo style. But once he started to get hit by Urush, it just seemed like, you know, the, the kid wanted out. And it almost seems like that for every single opponent that Urush has fought, even down there in Alaska FC. So it's very difficult to tell how good this kid is, given his very weak level of competition up until this point, compared to Alan Cruz, who we've seen go up against you know, tested guys in the on the regional scene. Uh, Demond Blackshear is another guy that comes to mind. And even though he lost that fight, that was a fight that was very close back and forth. A lot of clinching in that fight. He eventually gets finished in that fourth round via submission. But, you know, that fight, Steve Garcia, the, the New Yin fight as well too, they're tough fights. And you see him go out there, use his length very well, use a lot of kicks. Um, he's very active as well too and that's one thing i like about guys that have that distance advantage over their opponents especially the reach is how active they are from the distance you know what i mean like are they throwing shots out there or are they just like you know doing enough to stay on the outside and landing a shot here and there whereas crew it seems like he is 
early often and keeps that pace up over 15 minutes. It seems like he's more than capable capable of doing that. I give him the technical advantage too when it comes to the striking, right? Uroch seems a little bit more raw, a little bit more green. The kid's 27 years old with only six MMA fights. So I'm interested to see how uh, they both have rounded out their game given that they're both in uh, new gyms as well too. One thing I do want to touch on about Medic as well, his takedown defense looks porous. It does not look like it even exists. Now, is that the way that Cruz is going to look to approach this fight? Maybe. Maybe that's something that Eric Nixick, that's what his name is, Eric. Eric Nixick, maybe that's the way he approaches this fight, is let's just take this guy to the ground. He clearly doesn't look that good. He has some decent jiu-jitsu. Let's not get that twisted. But has he really fought anybody to a level that's going to push him? And, and if he gets past the full guard, what is he going to look like off of his back? Um, so yeah, I question heavily the competition that Roche has faced in the past. And, uh, you know, the only thing that you can really take away from Cruz is, uh, negatively, I should say, is what is his durability actually like? I truly believe that Spike Carlisle is one of the harder hitters in the game. So I think he's going to, you know, I don't, I don't see Medic really putting him out unless he lands like a beautiful, uh, beautifully timed and placed head kick, um, but uh, I feel like he's going to struggle against Cruz here, who shows great movement, great distance striking, like I said, and great kicks as well, too. So uh, even though Medic will have a one-inch height advantage, he's going to be at a seven-inch reach disadvantage. And I think that's truly going to be prominent here uh, the longer that this fight goes on. So I'm going with the Cruz side. I'm going to say he wins by decision, like just outpoints him from the outside, maybe takes him down and rides him from on top for a bit. But that truly is because I don't really know what to expect from Medic if his fight gets extended into rounds two or round three. Is his cardio just going to com completely fall off the cliff? Let's give the guy the benefit of the doubt. Like earlier in his career, it didn't look that great, but he must be working on it. He must be knowing that, okay, I'm in the UFC now, so I really need to round out my game, especially my cardio, especially if I'm getting pushed later in fights. And this is totally a fight that I, that could happen to. So don't fall into the trap of thinking, okay, Alan Cruz got knocked out last time around. He's going to more than likely get knocked out by this guy who has a ton of knockouts on his record as well. That's completely false thinking. Again, shout out to AJ's MMA betting who says the same thing, right? Like, don't put too much stock into standing knockouts because, again, the, the level of competition that Roche was going up against in AFC, the guys didn't even look like they wanted to get hit. So, or obviously nobody wants to get hit, but they didn't enjoy getting hit to the point where they're just curling up or dropping at any slight strike landing on them clean enough. So, yeah, I think uh, Urosh is going to be in for a little bit of a rude awakening, fighting somebody that actually will fight him and make it difficult. Uh, so I, I lean Cruz here, and I'm going to take him to win this fight via decision. Livia Hanata Souza versus Amanda Lemos. And we got minus 235 on Amanda Lemos, plus 195 on Lavinia Souza. Let's start off on the Souza side. Was coming over off of a victory over uh, Ashley Yoder last time around. She beat her by, de by decision. And it was more so just, you know, her landing the better shots on the feet in those first two rounds, doing some good work from on top in the, uh, in the uh, you know, with her grappling in that first round as well. But then giving up that third round, it just didn't look good with Yoder, you know, being the one pushing the pressure, landing her distance strikes and staying on the outside, whereas Souza seemed to have been slowing down a little bit. And that seems to be the, um, you know, the, the rap on her in her last several fights where fights do reach that third round. She significantly starts to slow down. And even in that Sarah Frota fight, you see her pull guard within the first minute or so of that third round. And that's just not a good look, not the type of uh, performance or, or technique you want to be seeing from a fighter of that level. Now, she luckily won that fight via split decision, but 
it was a close fight. You know what I mean? It, it's it, you know she was a minus two thirty favorite in that Frota fight, and you know she definitely did not look like it. Now she has decent striking. Her ground game is really good. Obviously, a black belt. Uh, takedowns look decent as well too. But when the fight is on the feet, uh, you know, if a, a fighter like Amanda Lemos is across from her, I don't think she'll have as mu- as much success. I think it's going to be very important for her to try to get this fight to the ground, which is where she should have success. But we just don't have enough tape on Amanda Lemos off of her back to truly make that conclusion that you know Souza was style on her from the back, um, or, or on top of her at least. Or even finish her. If she doesn't finish her, how do the second and third rounds look with her, you know, possibly having to work hard to keep Lemos down and then her possible cardio issues as well, too. Um, the Brianna Van Buren fight, completely outstruck in that fight. It gave up a couple takedowns and obviously slowed down later in that fight, too. And uh, yeah, there's just so many question marks in terms of what Lemos looks like out of her back. And I think that's the biggest question mark in this fight. But Everything that we've seen from Lemos, other than, you know, the, the fact that we haven't seen her off her back, looks quite impressive, right? Her fight against Miranda Granger, she does a decent job on the feet. The fight eventually gets taken to the ground, uh, and she locks up this beautiful rear naked choke, but from a very weird position where she doesn't have either hooks in. I believe she was like, it was, it was a very weird position, but she puts Granger out. I don't think Granger was even expecting to go out from a choke like that because she didn't even end up tapping. She goes out, Lemos gets her hand raised that night. Then she comes back and fights Mizuki Inoue, where, you know, the majority of the fight was pretty much Inoue pushing Lemos up against the cage. Lemos having a little bit of trouble getting out of those positions, but she kept the fight on the feet. You know, she she didn't get taken down. And whenever they were separated, we saw Lemos landing the much harder, much crisper, and more damaging strikes, which is why pretty much all three judges gave her a 30-27 in that fight. Beautiful performance from a distance perspective, but the fact that she was having trouble getting off the cage leads me to believe like if she fights somebody that's a much better grappler than Inouye, she's going to have some trouble. Now, I feel like she'll be the stronger woman here compared to Livia Souza. Uh, she'll be the a bigger woman as well, too. One inch height advantage, two inch reach advantage. But when it, when it comes to the striking uh, difference, I feel like we'll definitely see Lemos uh, pull away with it. You know, even off of her back foot, she's a great striker. And I think if this fight does end up in clinched positions up against the cage, I think Mizuki, uh, you know, would, would have been much uh, more uh, successful uh, in potentially getting Lemos down than Souza will be. Souza might be able to get like an open cage takedown or something like that. She has some good trips, some good body lock takedowns herself. But if it's up against the cage, I think she's going to struggle there. And then again, the longer this fight goes on, she's probably going to be burning those muscles and she's going to start getting stressed out and that's going to start to affect her cardio. And then we'll see Lemos potentially keep on the outside and really start to tag Souza. You know, Souza, uh, sorry, Lemos by KO is a probable, uh, a solid prop in my opinion as well as I feel like the longer this fight stays on the feet the worse it is for Souza here Lemos does a good job from distance striking uh you know she's a far cry from what we saw from her I believe it was in 2015 or 16 when she fought Leslie Smith up at 135 pounds then she takes a bunch of time off comes back looking completely different and also finding two weight classes down now so she looks strong she looks good you know her last two performances is she did a really good job in terms of securing the victory in those fights Whereas Souza, you know, it seems like she's slowly starting to fall off. And that's weird to say because Souza's 29, Lemos is 33. But it seems like Lemos is closer to like, you know, reaching her peak or even in her peak in her prime compared to Souza who continuously just makes fights closer and closer every single time out. And then obviously her her production and quality of work really starts to fall off later in the fight too. So I like Lemos here. 
uh, minus 235, maybe a little bit too chalky, considering that we haven't seen her work off of her back. And, uh, you know, I feel like if that's, um, if that's the question mark here, I, I still like Lemos, right? Gotta believe that she has decent enough jujitsu to uh, keep Suzo from tapping her here. Uh, you know, the last time we saw Suzo get a submission was when she was a mi minus 1500 against Alex Chambers. Uh, that was a while ago, and that was her UFC debut as well, too. And now she's just not been looking that great as of as of late from from her last three fights. So even though she's two hundred one in her last couple of fights, I feel like her stock is definitely dropping, which is why she's a plus one ninety five dog here. And I think that Lemos's stock is definitely rising with her performances her last couple of fights out, and she's definitely distancing herself from that Leslie Smith loss, which was just brutal. Did did not look good at all, and now she's looking amazing. So. I like Lemos here. I think she's live for a KO as well. I'm going to say third round TKO, given the the, the amount that Souza slows down and how much success Ashley Yodra had as well in that third round from the distance striking. Uh, and I think that's the approach we'll see Lemos take here is just try to remain at distance and just pick her apart from the outside. Uh, hopefully, she's able to keep this fight on the feet. But uh, yeah, I, I do like Lemos here. I, I even like Lemos better than Carlos Holberg in the spot. And you're getting a slightly better line on Lemos here too. So... Uh, Lemos is just way more proven, um, you know, not as big question marks as we have on Alberg. So I do like Lemos here, and uh, I'll take her to win this fight uh, via KO in that third round. Jake Matthews versus uh, Sean Brady. Sorry, I just had a quick little brain fart there. Uh, we got minus 220 on Sean Brady and plus 180 on now the UFC vet Jake Matthews. And it's hard to believe that Jake Matthews has been in the UFC since 2014, where he made his UFC debut against Deshaun Johnson and triangle chokes him in the third round. And since that, uh, he's accrued a record of 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, and 4 in the UFC. Obviously, he came into the UFC undefeated, uh, but he's dropped fights to James Vick, Kevin Lee, Andrew Holbrook, and then Anthony Roque Martin uh, most recently. But now, he's on a three-fight losing streak. However, it's not the most impressive three-fight winning streak, right? You got Rockman, uh, uh, Rostam Akman, who I do, don't believe is in the UFC anymore. Emil Mech, uh, given the game plan that Matthews went in there, which is to go out there and grapple fuck him. Not the, you know, not the hardest thing to do, apparently, against a guy like Mech. And then Diego Sanchez, right? Do we really need to say anything about that fight? I know a ton of people that lost a ton of money off of betting Jake Matthews to win that fight inside the distance, and he just wasn't able to do it. Now, what we see from Jake Matthews is, right, is uh, just strength almost and, and brute strength to a certain extent where he just, um, he's okay with accepting the back foot. He allows his opponent to kind of just dictate the pace on the feet and then he just, you know, lunges forward every now and then pretty much headhunting. Doesn't really go out there and, and try to mix up combinations or go to the body as much. It's more so just like a one-two combination on the feet to try to like drop you, rock you, hurt you, just like he did in the Li Jing Liang fight, right? Lee was the one kind of pressuring uh, the majority of that fight, got dropped a couple times, and that was what pretty much gave away the fight. But it was a very close fight, and you got to say to this point, that's his most impressive victory name value-wise. Um, the Boyan, Velichko, Boyan Velichkovich fight, very, very close. I mean, we see Velichkovich get a couple of takedowns, uh, get a couple of reversals, a couple of close submission attempts as well too, uh, but Jake Matthews is able to gut it out and pull out a split decision victory there. That was at 155 pounds. Now he's at 170 uh, or has been for a couple fights now. And you get a big, thick guy like Sean Brady. You're definitely not going to be the stronger one in there. So I'm curious to see what his approach in this fight is going to be. Because I feel like Sean Brady almost has him beat everywhere, right? Outside of the actual UFC experience, 
Sean Brady is the better striker, shows great combinations, great kicks, good low calf kick and just kick in general, something that Rocco Martin was able to do with very much uh, with good success and eventually led to him getting that anaconda choke finish. Um, seems to be the stronger guy. You can just tell that by looking at the guys. But even in grappling and clinch situations, you see uh, Sean Brady, usually the more imposing one, usually the one, uh, you know, landing his trip takedowns, getting those body lock takedowns. Um, and then the jujitsu. Daniel Gracie black belt is what uh, Sean Brady is and you see him quite active you know especially with that guillotine choke something you hear um, uh, Paul Felder talk about in his last fight against Christian Aguilera is that it's the, he's the, one of the toughest guys or one of the hardest squeezes he's ever gone up against when you're, when you're talking about guillotines and that was with Sean Brady and that's what exactly Sean Brady was able to uh, latch on to uh, Christian Aguilera after get I believe he got full mount uh, latched on that uh, that guillotine and was able to put his lights out uh, relatively quickly that's one of the quicker times I've ever seen somebody go from conscious to unconscious after somebody uh, locked up a, a choke on them so it's for real um and then again, uh, the striking is another thing that I think that Brady just has an advantage in. A little bit more of a uh, volume, uh, is willing to push the pace and dictate the pace, uh, and throws solid combinations and throws with a bunch of power as well too. So, uh, And then if you want to talk about cardio as well, you, you go the Sean Brady side again, right? Uh, Jake Matthews shows that he almost muscles a lot of his fights, which leads him to kind of start slowing down later in fights. The Diego Sanchez fight, you see him slowing down later in the fight. The Mio Mac fight, you see him slowing down later in the fight. He's not as, as successful in getting the fight to the ground uh, later because he's just huffing and puffing a little bit more. Whereas Sean Brady seems like he can go, he can go that, that solid three rounds. The only time we've really seen Sean Brady in a little bit of trouble was the Court McGee fight. But his power and his striking bails him out in those spots where Court McGee's kind of pushing the pressure, staying in his face, landing some good shots. Sean Brady comes in return and throws some good combinations, cracks him a couple times, and, and wins the round back. But in that third round, it did look a little bit fishy, right? He starts to slightly slow down. But... Let's chalk that up to, you know, UFC jitters, first time in the cage. And then after that, you see him go out there and fight a relatively harder opponent in, in uh, Ishmael Nardiev. Uh, drops that first round, shows great composure, comes back in the second, uh, chases the takedown, gets the takedown, and does some good work from on top. He's he's a very good top-pressure fighter, uh, you know, with control time, with, with submissions, and just keeping guys there and doing damage. And he showcased that in... Uh, both of his last two fights, right? The the Nardia fight uh, takes the second and third round there. And then in the Aguilera fight, he obviously gets the submission in that fight. Whereas Jake Matthews, like when he gets these guys down, sure, it looks great, but he doesn't really do the best in terms of holding these guys down. Uh, most guys are able to get back to the feet outside of the, you know, the Mechs and the and the Sanchez's. But, uh, you know, earlier in his career, the the, the Lee Jing Leong's, the Boyan Velichkovich's, the Anthony Rocco Martin. Andrew Holbrook, he just can't hold these guys down. And even Holbrook, the way that he's getting Matthews down leaves me a lot of uh, concerns in terms of how he's going to deal with the takedown game of Sean Brady if that's the, the path that Brady decides to take in this fight. So I just don't see where Jake Matthews truly wins this fight. I think we've kind of, you know, the, the jury is out on Matthews where he's just going to be this top, you know, middling top 15 type of guy, uh, never really cracks that top 10, will always kind of falter to these guys that are just technically much better than him and that's why I feel like we're getting in Sean Brady as a guy that just ne doesn't know how to lose right he's he was 4-0 on the regional scene uh, or sorry on the amateur scene and then he comes into the UFC with an undefeated record and to this point has yet to lose a fight he's 13-0 so all in all he's 17-0 black belt in jiu-jitsu the only slight knock I would give to him is Maybe if we see him go out to a, to a different camp and uh, not a super camp per se, but maybe a well-known camp. 
but can you really knock him? Like, why fix what's not broken? He's having good success out of that training camp that he's in with uh, in Philadelphia. That's where Paul Felder started up too, right? But now we're seeing Paul Felder jump around a little bit more too. Um, if you kind of scroll through the IG of Brady, you see him working with Eddie Alvarez at times. That's kind of the main guy that you can, you can pick out there. But uh, yeah, his jujitsu seems very, very high level. Uh, and I think that if he winds up on the back, I think we could see him potentially pull off some reversals and find himself on top of Jake Matthews. Jake Matthews has given up reversals in the past, multiple reversals in multiple fights. And that just leads me to believe that he's not going to have the most success here against uh, Sean Brady. So I highly favor Brady in this. And I'm kind of stumped as to why the line is starting to come back down and Jake Matthews is getting some love. Like we had Sean Brady open up in that minus 300s and now he's obviously down uh, in the minus 220s. I'm on, on Bookmaker, I can get him at minus 196 and I'm very close to pulling the trigger and uh, believing that he's truly my lock of the night play here. I, I feel like given the rest of this card, Jake Matthews presents the least threat to his opponent. Um, you know, even though we have, you know, significant favorites like Amanda Nunes and Megan Anderson, I'm not tipping a Megan Anderson lock on the night play. Even her inside the distance is minus 350. I'm not going to do that to you guys. I want to give at least a little bit of value, at least decent returns, nothing worse than minus 300. And if we're getting, you know, just below minus 200 for Sean Brady, I think that's a ton of value. So I'll be going with Sean Brady here. More than likely going to be my lock on the night play for this week. Uh, and yeah, I think it wins this fight relatively dominantly. And... I think he potentially finishes this fight. So I'll, I'll take Sean Brady to win this fight either by first or second round submission. Kennedy and Zetchuku versus Carlos Alberg. We got minus 250 on the city kickboxing product, Carlos Alberg, and plus 210 on the Fortis MMA product, Kennedy and Zetchuku. So let's start off with the Zetchuku side of things, who's uh, coming off a win over Darko Stosic, which is well, uh, quite a while ago. I believe it was in August of 2019, the same night that Colby Covington fought Robbie Lawler. And uh, he, he ekes that fight out via decision, uh, not to mention a couple points taken away from Darko Stosic in that second and third round. But Nzechukwu was doing a pretty good job in terms of staying on the outside and getting his punches and strikes off in uh, uh, in those first two rounds. He did get taken down a couple times in that second round, and the judge did actually give it to Stosic. Unfortunately for him, point taken away, so it doesn't even really matter. Uh, Kenny Nzechukwu comes away with the decision victory in that fight. But you know, doing what he does, maintaining his range. He's 6'5 with an 83-inch reach. So he's, you know, more often than not taller than his opponents, longer than his opponents, and is able to get away with just, like, picking them apart from the outside. The Paul Craig fight, that was a weird one, where we saw Paul Craig continuously rolling for the legs or or dropping for, uh, you know, pulling guard or doing whatever he can to get Nzetchuku on top of him and try to get his jujitsu game going. And then we obviously know that Kennedy, um, you know, last round, I believe he gets a point taken away in that round, so he has to go for it a little bit harder, uh, get some top control, land some good elbows, but sticks around a little bit too long. So, so there's one time where he, uh, you know, almost gets the triangle locked up on him, uh, does a good job of sneaking in his other arm and nullifying that, and then you can hear Safe Sayu telling him to just get up and get away. And as he's trying to do so, Paul Craig, the savvy veteran, holds on to the, the right arm of Kennedy and Zetchuku. And as and Zetchuku is like moving out of the way, he locks, uh, kind of just pulls Kennedy back into him. And while doing so, uh, throws his uh, leg over the shoulder and uh, secures that triangle choke and just immediately uh, reverses the position, gets on top of him. And you see a tap right away from uh, Kennedy that night. 
So, uh, you know, and then his previous fights before, again, he's getting away with knocking these guys out and maintaining his distance, but we don't truly see him tested uh, by a guy that's a much better striker than him, which is what Carlos Albert brings to the table here. Kennedy is one of those guys that I think he'll he'll forever stay green. Like he's he's 28 years old, but he'll just never have those like mechanics that are going to make him a great kickboxer or a boxer or a striker like a, a Carlos Solberg or anybody else in the light heavyweight division that has solid striking. He's just going to get away with his length, his strength, um, and his athleticism. Now, we've never really seen him go out there and actually chase takedowns and try to get guys down and, and get control time because that's obviously going to be his path to victory here against Carlos. But without actually seeing it on tape, how much can we actually put into that? How much stock can we truly put into that? More often than not, when you see him on the ground, it's because his opponent is either pulling guard or they you know fell to the ground or something like that. But it's never Kennedy actually like seeking that takedown. Is he going to be successful in taking Carlos down here? That's the big question, right? There's no way he thinks that he's going to go out there and outstrike Alberg on the feet. That's probably not going to happen. Alberg has a very extensive kickboxing background, and you got to believe it favors him as long as this fight stays on the feet. But let's mix in the fact that, again, Kennedy and Zetchuk was coming from that Fortis MMA camp that, uh, you know, run by Safe Sayud, a mastermind who's probably salivating at the mouth right now, coming up with the game plan to beat a guy like Carlos Alberg, who's only 3-0. And then obviously on the Alberg side, you got Eugene Behrman in his corner, who's a mastermind in his own right. But how ready can you get a fighter who's just been dedicating the majority of his life to kickboxing, right? Uh, Carlos Alberg, his first pro MMA fight was in 2011 against a guy that just started sucking wind after two minutes of fighting and pretty much just gave up on the stool in between rounds. And then you see a second fight against uh, Martin Frazier, John Martin Frazier, I believe the guy's name is, and that guy just doesn't push Carlos. He just stays on the outside, allows Carlos to just pick him apart from range. You know, Alberg doesn't go too hard in terms of trying to knock the guy out, but just does just just does enough to go out there and uh, you know outpoint him on the feet, and was never in any trouble whatsoever. And then Bruno Oliveira, that's the contender series fight where we see Oliveira kind of pushing the pace, landing his own uh, kicks and all that stuff, but never really trying to engage in that grappling realm. That's where we want to see Carlos uh, challenged. And I think that Kennedy could potentially bring that to him. However, the kid's just so green, right? Like, I believe when he's going to be closing the distance, he's going to be leaving so many openings for Carlos just to land, you know, strict um, straight shots down the middle that are going to catch him on the chin. And he could potentially knock out Nzechuku here as well. Um, I just don't see how Nzechuku wins this fight from distance. It, it's not going to happen. I think we'll see Alberg attack that lead leg, maybe Izzy style, like attack the calf, really start to immobilize Nzechuku and then start to let his hands go. But uh, yeah, there's just so many question marks. I'm not willing to go out there and lay minus 250 on a guy that has only three MMA fights and has so many question marks around him. But then again, I'm not running to the betting window to bet a guy like Nzechuku who's, you know, plus 210, but is always green and, and shows a little bit of a robotic type of approach whenever he's striking. And it works out for him. You know what I mean? He's able to keep guys on the outside. He's able to, to continuously punish guys from the outside. But how is his grappling game? How is his, you know, jujitsu game? Is he able to get this guy down? And if he does, is he going to be able to keep him there? Too many questions, and I don't want any part of this fight. Even the, the fight doesn't go to decision, right? That seems a little bit sexy, just given both of these guys' resumes, but I can see this being a fight that just mainly plays out at distance, and we see Alberg just, you know, put on that performance that he get, did against, uh, like, two fights ago against uh, John uh, Martin Frazier, and we get a stinker of a fight where these guys are just, you know, staring at each other, and we just see Alberg ever so slightly just notch a decision victory because he was slightly more active. So... 
too many question marks for this. Uh, there's just not enough juice or, or meat on the bone, I should say, on either guy to uh, justifiably make a play. Like, if anything, I think you, you got to bet on Zetchuko here just from the um, just from value perspective alone. But uh, this could absolutely look like Carlos Allberg minus 500 the longer this fight stays on the feet. And given that we have so many question marks about both guys, this, this fight is just, just stay the hell away is all I'm saying. Do not be that guy going out there and parlaying Carlos Allberg at minus 250 and then he ends up on his back and he just doesn't know how to get up. That could absolutely happen here. But again, we just haven't seen that from Kennedy either. So too many question marks here i'm gonna side with the allberg side because i just feel like you know the guy the kid's been kickboxing forever kennedy and zechuku has gotten into the game a little bit later and he's getting away on his athleticism his 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 power his brute strength um and obviously his his distance striking but he's not going to out distance strike our guy carlos here so i'll go with carlos and i'll take him to win this fight via decision but this fight is just a no bet from my side so i'll go with carlos allberg um either decision or or tko but i feel like uh we'll, we'll see him stay on the outside so i'll go with allberg to win this fight via decision tim elliott versus jordan espinoza we got plus 105 on tim elliott and minus 125 on jordan espinoza let's start off on the espinoza side of things who's coming off a loss to david dvorak last time around which he got pretty much lit up and in the striking uh realm not the craziest but i believe all three judges gave all three rounds to david dvorak in that fight and i think the the basis of dvorak's victory in that fight was his uh his knack for chewing up that lead leg of jordan espinoza and you saw it especially the calf um you know right off the get-go he was just chewing that up to kind of immobilize jordan espinoza really take the pop off his shots as well as slow him down too right that's i i believe that's the advantage that espinoza had in that fight was the speed but we saw Dvorak go out there and just attack the leg right off the bat and whenever he started to slow down or start to come in lazily with with the combination you saw David Dvorak really get his punches off and and really stun and 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 you know confuse Jordan Espinoza anytime Jordan went back to his corner in between the rounds uh you know he was conveying that to his corner as well too saying that he felt flat but uh, you know you, you got to give some credit to Dvorak there it was because of the game plan that he implemented in that fight and it didn't seem like a you know complete shellacking where it was like a 10-8 round or anything like that but he still went out there and just did an efficient game plan every single round and really slowed down uh Espinoza and pulled off a, a solid decision victory that night before that we saw Jordan Espinoza at his best against Mark De La Rosa which was you know sticking and moving getting that jab going um especially with the speed that uh, Espinoza brings up his job just absolutely amazing but Tim Elliott or, or sorry uh, De La Rosa could do absolutely nothing about it um you know De La Rosa mainly a jiu-jitsu guy so you're struggling to get the fight to the ground and then anytime the fight was on the feet Espinoza was pretty much just lighting him up with his one two and mainly his jab but it's weird that it comes uh, where it comes from right like Espinoza carries his lead hound really low uh, and he's able to bring it up with such speed and agility that it just catches his opponents off guard and not to mention it it's coming from his hips so it comes from all these weird angles rather than just a traditional you know straight in front of your face and then just right down the middle whereas you know it's coming up and almost like a, a shovel uppercut slash jab type of thing at sometimes uh, at some point so very very effective against De La Rosa. Then two fights before that, right? Uh, Alex Perez and Match now both put him out via submission and very impressive submissions as well, uh, which made it uh, even more uh, questionable about Espinosa moving forward, how he's going to deal with guys that have a solid grappling base. Now, 
you know, with De La Rosa, he was able to nullify the takedown. So that fight was pretty much on the feet the entire time. So he saved himself there. But how is it going to look against a guy like Tim Elliott, who, you know, I believe his Instagram or handle is at Awkward MMA. And it, that's the epitome of Tim Elliott's game, right? The guy's very awkward, unorthodox. He, he brings another level to, to the game in terms of just the, the, the creativity and, and just the awkward movements that he brings to the cage. I believe it was like the last round of the Ryan Benoit fight or the second round of the Ryan Benoit fight where he comes out almost walking backwards towards Benoit and just kind of like trying to freak him out or psych him out. Uh, but but that's where we see Elliot like at his best, right? When he's going out there and, and confusing his guys and having this awkward, weird footwork and, you know, just throwing the, the, the leg kick out there every now and then. The fight that was most um, frustrating if you were an Askarov backer was the, or sorry, uh, an Elliot backer was the Askarov fight. Where, you know, that, that third round, it was pretty much Tim Elliott marching him down the entire time and just not throwing anything. That's where Askarov was getting off in that fight where, you know, even though he was the one moving back, he was the one throwing the strikes and really touching Tim Elliott. And Tim Elliott is just goading him on and just like flexing and saying, come on, come on. But Tim Elliott's not doing anything. Uh, then we saw in the Brandon Roy Val fight, he just had a complete cardio dump in that after that first round. That's where we saw Roy Val pick up the submission in the second round. But in that first round, he was going balls to the wall for some reason. Comes down that second round, huffing and puffing. Brandon Roy Val takes advantage, locks up a choke there, and gets the victory. Uh, but then we see an even better Tim Elliott the next time out against Ryan Bonnet, where we see him, you know, look good for the majority of that fight. Uh, I saw weird scoring almost everywhere uh, throughout, but but I was uh, somewhat impressed with what we saw from Elliott. Now, I believe his awkward movement is going to make it a little bit harder for Espinosa to get his game off. Um, uh, you know, if Elliot stays composed and 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 throws his uh, throws the leg kicks, uh, you know, often and early, uh, I think he's going to give uh, Espinosa some trouble. Maybe follow Dvorak's game plan, not to a T, but to the point of immobilizing Espinosa and then getting the rest of his game going. And I wouldn't even be surprised to see a, a possible Tamelliot sub here. He has decent takedowns, and then obviously his awkwardness and the chaotic approach that he brings to the game opens up the the, the possibility of him, you know, grabbing onto Espinosa, you know, whether it's a dart choke, whether it's a guillotine or whatever it is, but get this fight to the ground and really t- test Espinosa in that submission uh, realm. And I think that we'll see Elliot very successful in doing so. Like he's always hunting the choke, he's always hunting the dart choke, whatever it is. If you tie up with him more often than not, he's going to be looking to either take a limb home or try to choke you out. Um, so I think that might be his approach, right? Play a little bit on the outside, kind of confuse uh, Espinosa with the movement, and then go inside and, and attack, you know, a, 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 a takedown or, or get into the clinch position and engage in some sort of a sub- submission grappling uh, scenario, which could allow him to be very successful. And that's where I think he will be. So I even think the, um, I wish I had it available. Uh, I thought I had it up, but uh you know what, I'm just going to pull it up for you real quick. The the prop that I'm looking at is Tim Elliott via sub. And I think that he could be very live in, in pulling it off here. So Tim Elliott uh, plus 105 on the money line. And then via submission, we got plus 410, which I think is very, very uh, juicy given uh, Espinosa's inability to at times to to defend against jiu-jitsu players. So uh, yeah, Mark De La Rosa, not the best at getting the fight to the ground. And that's the last best uh, jiu-jitsu player he's, uh, he's won up against. And then obviously the two guys before that, Alex Perez, really good wrestling game and he was able to get the fight to the ground. And then same with... Um, uh, Matt Schnell, who did a very good job in terms of getting that fight to the grappling realm. I think Tim Elliott will create that chaos and will be able to get to this, this fight to a part where he can take advantage of his grappling uh, skills. 
uh, and, and put it on Espinosa. So I'll go on Elliot. I'll go either first or second round submission. Uh, but yeah, I, I like Elliot here. I'm not 100% sure enough to actually bet him myself. But I think that he uh, he brings this weird game plan that Espinosa is going to truly have trouble getting his, uh, his jab off. Uh, and if he can't get his jab off, I think he... Uh, really you know gets frustrated and he's not really able to get the rest of his game going and uh you know awkward mma mr tim elliott is going to make it very difficult for him given his uh his movement uh his you know he's almost jekyll and hyde with his cardio because he looks so crap with his cardio in the brandon roy val fight but then he looks amazing in the uh in the ryan benoit fight with his cardio continuously moving and continuously going so i'm expecting him to have his cardio in check here uh, and uh, keep that movement on Espinoza, initiate the grappling sequences at, at times, and hopefully wrap up a sub. I'll say uh, Tim Elliott via submission in... Let's go with round two. So I'll go with Tim Elliott. Submission via uh, via submission round two. Kai Cara France versus Hogerio Bontarin. We got minus 135 on Cara France and plus 115 on Bontarin. And I believe we've seen we've been seeing a bunch of love coming in on uh, Hogerio since uh, this fight was originally announced. So I just want to jump on that. Yeah, we had Cara France open up around minus 165. Now he's down to minus 135. Uh, and I kind of understand it, but I still find this fight a little bit difficult too, in terms of, uh, you know, truly figuring out who should win this fight. Now, I lean Kai Car France, but I know that he's always heavily favored in most of his fights, right? Like if you just look at his last couple fights, minus 200 against Brian and Royval loses that fight. Minus 265 against Tyson M, you know, easily beats Tyson M, who is very uh, reliant on that knockout. Um, minus 160 against Brandon Moreno loses that fight. Minus 185 against Mark De La Rosa wins that. And then minus 265 against Holly and Paiva, who... In my opinion, got robbed in that fight. So uh, we know what Car France's game is, right? Like the guy's a striker. He likes to blitz move, uh, forward, land a couple of strikes, and then get out of the way. Uh, decent takedown defense. Um, you know, he he seems a little bit more active of a striker, which is why he was able to get away with beating Tyson Nam the way that he did. We know what Tyson Nam's game is, right? He just sticks around, waits to pop that shot, pops that shot. And if it doesn't land, then he just starts buffering again and waits for the opportunity to land that knockout blow. And if it doesn't come, more than likely he's losing a decision. So Kai Car France really bailed himself out and, and got the victory there. But when he went up against guys like uh, Brandon Moreno and Brandon Roy Val, both guys create such chaos that it made it very difficult for Kai Car France to get his game off. Right, you got a, a crazy striker like Moreno moving forward, throwing all these unorthodox shots from all these different stances and and these uh, scenarios, and it truly threw Car, Car France off of his game. And then you got Brandon Royval, even a crazier performance where he gets rocked early from Car France, throws a spinning back elbow, rocks Car France himself, and then uh, they find themselves in this weird grappling position, omoplata position, and then eventually in the second round you see Royval snatch up that neck uh, and get the choke of uh, over Kai Car France. It almost reminded me of. Um, uh, Anderson Dos Santos versus Tyson Nam, where, not Tyson Nam, sorry, Martin Day, where like, uh, you know, he goes for a takedown and, and uh, extends a little bit too much on the takedown, leaving his neck open and Brandon Roy Val was all over that, getting that neck, just as um, Anderson Dos Santos did in his fight. So, I, you know, I, I think he'll be able to keep this fight on the feet against Bontran, but Bontran is just not a complete scrub on the feet either. He's not just a jiu-jitsu player. The guy has some good hands. He has some good striking and some good combinations too, but I think he's going to have a little bit of difficulty tracking down Car France and dealing with the speed advantage that uh, Kai will have here. 
Uh, obviously, Kai training out of City Kickboxing. I believe that's a gym that he joined after his time on the Ultimate Fighter. And it's, you know, done pretty well for him. You know, a decent record in the UFC. Uh, but he, I, I just don't think he'll ever reach that top level, that that flyweight champion level. But I think he can beat guys like Bonturin who you know, show some slight deficiencies on the feet. Like, again, I don't want to completely write him off on the feet as he was having uh, massive amounts of success against Magomed Bibulatov. And then obviously the Holly and Paiva fight. I wish we saw that one go a little bit longer, but he took some damage in that fight. And then he landed that beautiful knee on Paiva, which absolutely split open his eyebrow and they had to stop that fight via via a cut. But last time we saw Bontrin was against uh, Ray Borg, where he got completely outgrappled, right? outscrambled by Ray Borg, who's probably the scramble master. Um, and uh, we, we saw uh, Bontrian have no answer for that, right? Even though he was a black belt in jiu-jitsu, it's just another level when you're talking about uh, scrambling with a guy at the level of Ray Borg. I think we even had a judge give two 10-8 rounds to Ray Borg in that fight. And let's also add in the fact that Ray Borg did miss weight for that fight. But, you know, what's new whenever we talk about Ray Borg, right? Uh, Car France, obviously not the, the level of scrambler that uh, one uh, Ray Borg is, but he still does a good job of move, moving around the cage. I don't think that Bontron will create the amount of chaos that we saw from the, the Moreno and the Roy Val fights. Uh, and I think he's more of a traditional striker than he is a, you know, a, a crazy unorthodox striker or a pressure striker. So I think that we'll see Car France, you know, he might be the one on his back foot for the majority of this fight. But I think that his blitzes and his speed and his combinations will give Bontorin some fits in terms of being able to get his own striking game off. Now, I'm not the most confident going out there and betting on Car Francis. He's always the guy that I look to go out there and fade. But I just don't feel comfortable betting, betting on a guy like Bontrian who seems to slow down a little bit later in fights. And I think that Car France could uh, take advantage of that. But I don't think he slows down to the effect of like looking like, you know, uh, who who guesses horribly after. Like He's not going to look like Justin James or anything after the after that first round or that second round. But he does slow down to the uh, to the level that I believe that uh, we'll see Car France be able to get his shots off a little bit more and maybe have a more of a dominant third round than he had in the first or second round. So I'm going with Car France here. I think he's just a better stand-up fighter. I think he has decent enough takedown defense to, uh, uh, you know, nullify the takedowns that are going to be coming down from, from Bontrian. And I think that he has decent enough submission defense as well um, to, to stay away from the submissions of Bontrian as well. So uh, I think he learned his fight from the Brandon Royval fight. You know, don't go out there and uh, and and get these crazy types of takedowns. Uh, stay within your means. Keep keep to your game plan, and you should be able to go out there and, and beat a guy like Bontrian. So I'll go with Car Car France. I think he wins this fight via decision just by sticking and moving, staying on the outside. Uh, again, I believe he's going to be the one on the back foot, but I think he'll be the one that's landing the better, bigger, and possibly even getting a knockdown against Bontrian too. Uh, so yeah, I, I like Car France here, and I'll take him to win this fight via decision. Joseph Benavides versus Askar Askarov. We got plus 100 on Jiu-Jitsu and minus 120 on Askar Askarov. Let's start off on the Askarov side, who's coming off a victory over Alexandre Pantoja last time around. Great decision victory for him there. That was a fight that was going 1-1 into that third round, and we saw uh, Pantoja's cardio fail him in that fight, which allowed Askarov to look like a boxing wizard almost on the feet where he was able to go out there and just pretty much beat uh, Pantoja to the punch. And again, Pantoja being as gassed as he was in that fight, he wasn't really able to react quickly enough 
to kind of just counter or evade the shots that were coming his way from uh, Askarov. But, you know, great performance from Askarov in that first round to be able to stay out of the submissions of Pantoja and then, uh, you know, just get his game going after that. The Tim Elliott fight, right? We see him go out there, rock Tim Elliott in that first round. Doesn't record a knockdown because we see uh, uh, Elliott quickly snap back to reality, uh, go for a, a takedown against um, Askarov and kind of just saves, saves himself from there. But that's another fight where we see Tim Elliott kind of marching him down in that third round where you question almost the cardio of Askarov as well too. However, Askarov does a good job of even off of his back foot throwing shots at Tim Elliott who just stupidly moving forward, hands down, kind of goading Askarov on and doesn't really do anything about it to really assert himself into the fight. Like first things first, he's doing great by marching him down, but he's not throwing anything behind it. And that's the, 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 the issue I have in that Tim Elliott fight. But, uh, you know, the, the, the shining moment for Askarov in that fight was obviously uh, rocking him in that first round. He did get taken down three times as well by Tim Elliott in, in that fight, but with a beautiful hip toss three times in a row. Uh, beautiful work from Elliott there, but Askarov comes out on the winning side. Then we have the UFC debut of Askar Askarov against Brandon Moreno, where he, uh, you know, that fight goes to a, a, a split draw. And I'm a guy that had heavy money on Askar Askarov that night. And I truly believe he lost that fight. And I think he deserved to lose that fight. You know, Moreno had a lot of success on the feet. He has a very unorthodox approach with his striking, but it was very, very effective. And then obviously the very like chaotic jujitsu nature of Brandon Moreno, he was able to have some success on the ground against Askarov too. Uh, Askarov obviously coming over from the ACB. I believe he was a champion over there, 10-0, or sorry, 11-0 before coming to the UFC. Uh, his one against Anthony Leon, like you see him getting taken down with relative ease, getting controlled as well too. Not the best of looks in there. But then we see his uh, uh, his cardio persevere at least. Uh, and then he gets a twister finish against uh, Anthony in that third round. Beautiful finish too. Uh, almost an unorthodox twister as well, right? Like the twister is already in unorthodox submission. But the twisters that we've seen in the UFC are guys that are able to lock up the opposite leg of their opponent with their legs, almost figure for their legs, and then grab the, their top of their body and twist it. Whereas he had like the, he didn't even have the leg locked up. He had it like a, uh, uh, he had the body figure four, almost like he had his back, but he was on the other side of him and then he started twisting him. So great win for him there. And then the uh, Rasul Abasa Kanav. Kanav, uh, absolutely. Let's go with Rasul. Second fight, uh, right, the fight right before coming to the UFC. Uh, struggles in that first round. Again, Russell does a good job of getting that fight to the ground, doing some good work from on top, but you could see that the cardio of his absolutely failed him. Askarov was clearly the better fighter and the more, uh, you know, rested and, and, and more energetic fighter in that second round, which is why he was able to pull off a beautiful guillotine choke in that second round. Now, matching up to against Jiu-Jitsu, right? Uh, Joseph Benavides, who's coming off of two straight losses to Davison Figueredo. That first fight against Figueredo, winning every second of that fight up until the headbutt. Now, I'm not blaming one side or the other. It, it takes both fighters to kind of, you know, create that moment for that headbutt to occur. But he was looking really good against Davison, right? Great combinations, in and out movement, great calf kicks as well too. Something that he's developed over his last couple fights that I'm very, very much a fan of. And, uh, you know, he he was doing very well against Davis. And I would have loved to see what the live odds were uh, going into that second round as Joseph Benavides was making it almost look easy, staying away from the big power of Davison. And then headbutt happens. Uh, he's like wiping at the cut. And as he's wiping at it, Davison just dra drops a big right hand on him, drops her, and then obviously finishes him. And then we know the whole circumstance around it, right? Davison misses weight. So they get an immediate rematch. And that fight, he just, you know, 
right off the bat, it looked like Davison was pretty much just taking uh, full advantage of it, right? It, it almost seemed like Joseph was very much, um, I, I don't know really what to call it, like, it seemed like he was impacted by that first fight because there was that right lead right hook, I believe, that Davison landed right off the bat that initially dropped Benavides and then it just went all to shit for Benavides. But, like, let's let's take the, that fight out of it. Let's take the other Davison fight out of it, even though he looked really good in it, right? Let's look back at his other three-fight winning streak. The, the Sergio Pettis fight, you could have easily scored that for him. Sergio rocks him in that first round, doesn't drop him, rocks him, wins that round. Benavides, clear case to win rounds two and round three. Close, though. But you could have made that uh, that argument for him, and then he possibly could have had a victory that night. But he comes out comes down comes out on the losing end. But not to mention the fact that he was coming off a year and a half layoff as well too. So that's another thing that people should take into consideration in that fight. Sergio Pettis, you know, not in the UFC anymore, but still a solid talent and a very tough uh, out to go up against, especially coming off such a long layoff. Then we go out there, underdog against Alex Perez, finishes him twice. Beautiful striking in that fight as well too, and really cracked Alex Perez. The Dustin Ortiz fight, you know, looked really good in that fight as well too. And then in that third round, absolutely out-wrestled and out-scrambled Dustin Ortiz. Uh, I believe Ortiz landed more strikes in that third round, but Benavides only landed one significant strike, but controlled the majority of that fight. And then the Juicier Formiga fight, right? The guy looked amazing from the from the beginning. His striking looked great. Combinations, calf kicks again, something that really uh, hindered the movement of Juicier Formiga. And then he was able to finish him in that, uh, at the ending of that second round. with uh, I believe it started off with a head kick and then he followed up with more shots. But this newer Benavides that we've been seeing since he came back uh, from that hiatus and starting off with that Pettis fight, the guy throws absolute heat in his strikes. It's insane. Like he goes out there doesn't really show much respect for his opponents and just throws absolute heat and you know it works out for him against Perez, Ortiz and Formiga and it was working against Davidson Figueiredo up until that headbutt but uh, since then it's just gone complete downhill. Now I think people backing Askarov are just absolutely focused uh, way more on the Davidson fights than they should be and then yeah obviously it should have a little bit of an effect on him moving forward but we're talking about one of the best flyweights of all time. He's always the bridesmaid as people are talking about but like when you have Dominic Cruz and uh, Mighty Mouse Johnson ahead of you at all times, it's not the worst thing in the world. So yeah, unfortunately, he gets the consolation prize every time out, but um, he's still a high-level guy that should go out there and do solid work against his opponents. I think he has the better stand-up here. I think he throws with the same amount of heat, if not more heat, than Askarov, but there's no real... like. There's no real factual evidence out there that Askarov is this crazy knockout puncher, right? All he did was rock Tim Elliott. What else did he do outside of that? You, you have a Pantoja that's clearly rock, or tired in front of you, and he wasn't really able to take advantage of that to the fullest extent. I think the cardio advantage goes to Joseph Benavides. And in terms of wrestling, both guys are highly credentialed, and it's called out a wash. But when you talk about the actual scrambling of it, there's no way that this guy would scramble Joseph Benavides. I truly believe that this guy will not be able to hold Benavides down if he gets him down. He might be able to get him down. Benavides has given up takedowns in the past, just as Askarov has given up takedowns in the past. But I don't believe that we'll see Askarov... I think Benavides will do a better job of holding Askarov down if that's the path that he chooses. And I truly believe the takedown is there for him to, to do so. Um, you know, we've seen... Um, Askarov taken down in all of his UFC fights. All of his opponents have taken him down. I believe Benavides will be able to take him down. 
if that's the path that he chooses to take. Even if this fight stays on the feet, I think his awkward in and out movement, his his blitzing attacks, his speed is going to be a little bit too much for Askarov here. And then mixing those calf kicks that we've been seeing from him as of late, I think that's going to really mess with Askarov as well too. So I like Benavides here. I don't really understand the Askarov uh, hype outside of thinking that, okay, Benavides has fallen off a cliff, but we can't just take that off of him losing to Davison Figueredo. You guys kidding me? He's been looking nothing but amazing since then. Again, up until he got headbutt in that first fight, he looked amazing. And then since then, it's deteriorated. But again, we're going to compare Askar Askarov to Davison Figueredo? That's unfair. So I'm going with uh, Benavides here. I, I have a little bit of a bet on him. Uh, as you guys can obviously tell, I'm talking very highly of Benavides here. I don't want to diminish what we have from Askarov on the other side. The guy's a decent wrestler too, or a good wrestler, has some solid jiu-jitsu, has some decent striking as well. But if this fight mainly stays on the feet, I have a hard time to believe that he's going to go out there and outstrike Benavides for 15 minutes or that he's going to finish Benavides. I wouldn't be surprised if Benavides finishes Askarov. I'd be willing to take a little bit of a sprinkle on that prop, uh, that KO prop as well too. You know, mixing the calf kicks with some heavy of the shots that he's bringing from the top. I think it's going to be a tough night for Askarov, no matter where this fight goes. Whether it's the ground, he's not going to be able to hold Benavides down. The only guy to get the most amount of control on Benavides as of late was Dustin Ortiz. He got three minutes of control time, but that was like him struggling to hold Benavides down. And Benavides still managed to get up and out of that position. Whereas Askarov hasn't really accrued crazy amounts of uh, control time. Actually, I lied. I, I, I don't want to... I don't want to... Uh, talk like that so let's let's get the actual numbers here it's five minutes of control times against pantoja who more than likely gassed for the majority of that uh four minutes of control time against Timelet, who had two minutes of control time against him brandon moreno that fight went to a draw had four minutes of control time against him compared to moreno who had six and a half minutes of control time in that fight and then pantoja in terms of his control time uh two and a half ish minutes to the five minutes to Askarov. But again, there's nobody that scrambles the way that Benavides does. I'd find I'd be very impressed with Askarov if he's able to control Benavides if wrestling is the way that he chooses to attack this fight. But I still think that Benavides has this in the bag again. Faster, better scrambler. Uh, I believe he's still there. Uh, I don't think that he's completely diminished from what we saw, you know, from the first half of that first Davison fight. And the two completely levels that you were talking about, Davison and uh, Askarov here. Askarov could turn out to be the truth. But from what I've seen in the cage thus far, I'm not overly impressed to the point that I'm saying that he should be a favorite here over Benavides. Again, I think it's the Davison fight that's weighing heavily on a lot of people mind, uh, people's mind. And when you just micro, like, like look at it from a microscope... It looks much worse, but look at it from a macroscope. Look at what Benavides has been able to do over his last several fights and not just the shellacking that I took from uh, Figueredo last time around. So yeah, I'm done. I'll go with Benavides to win by decision here, but I wouldn't be surprised if he lands a knockout finish either. So I'll go with Benavides via KO. Song Yudong versus Kyler Phillips. We got minus 155 on Song Yudong and plus 135 on Kyler Phillips. Let's start off on the Song Yudong side, who's coming off a victory over Marlon Vera, uh, a lot of people are saying it's quite controversial, but personally, I gave the first two rounds for, to Song Yudong for his forward pressure. Uh, you know, great uh, combinations, landed a lot of big shots on Vera as well, but then you could see the obvious um, cardio issues of Song Yudong come into play in that third round, where Marlon Vera was able to get a couple takedowns, some good top control, and then obviously pushing the pressure the entire third round. So yeah, he definitely won that third round, but uh, I do I did ever so slightly edge Song Yudong in those first two rounds. 
uh, but still, like you see the the, the flaws so slowly started coming out of Song Yudong's game as he's been, you know, such a highly touted prospect when he first came into the UFC. Couldn't figure out how old this kid was either. Turns out that he's like 23 years old now. And he made his MMA, a pro MMA debut way back in 2014, which pretty much puts his age at 16 years old when he first started fighting, which is absolutely insane. It's crazy that we're actually seeing fighters start that early off. You know, maybe you can get a little, get away with it in, in countries like that. But uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's a good wealth of experience to have over 21 fights by the time you turn 23 years old. Uh, so that definitely helps. In terms of the wars that he's been in, though, he, his, his chin issues might start to show themselves a lot earlier than they do for most fighters. But up until this point, his chin is held rock steady. So he, he can still go in there and take some good damage and dish out the, the same, if not more, damage in return. Uh, the Cody Stamen fight, that's a fight where we saw him uh, lose a point, I believe, in the first round due to an illegal knee. And, uh, you know, he knew it right off the bat. And luckily enough for him, he was still able to come out on the, uh, you know, with just a draw. Um, obviously, if he didn't get that point taken away, he would have won the fight. Uh, but that third round didn't look good either, just like the Marlon Vera fight. We saw Cody Stamen get the takedown and pretty much ride out uh, Song Yudong for that, for that entire round. And again, just, just seeing those... Those third round slip ups give me a huge amount of pause. Now, more often than not, he's going out there and finishing his guys, right? The Felipe Aranches fight and the, the Alejandro Perez fight were completely sleeping these guys. And Perez, too, <clears throat> a guy that's not notoriously known for having a bad chin, right? He's quite durable. So to see a guy like Song Yudong put him out the way that he did, I was I was very impressed to see that. And he was obviously a heavy favorite going into that fight, right? Minus 225 favorite. And he continues to be a big favorite in most of his fights. But Kyler Phillips, on the other hand, is a guy that seems to have a bit of a career resurgence. Like he had that loss to uh, Victor Henry a couple fights ago. And even his time on The Ultimate Fighter, where he dropped a, a fight to Brad Katona, since then he's just been looking really good, right? He's on a three-fight winning streak, two of them by KO albeit the Cameron Ellis fight that was just heavily outmatched. He was a minus 370 favorite going into that fight. But even the Gabriel Silva fight before that, plus 105 favorite going into that, but put on a very good performance. We saw his movement really much, uh, very much improved, kind of a karate style, very hippity-hoppity, uh, and then still able to go out there and, and you know, land the, the straights down the middle. Good combinations from the outside, great kicks as well, too. So it pretty much seemed like he was playing the Matador uh, role in that fight, right? And that could be very similar to what we see with, for, from Song Yudong, who might be the one on his, you know, pushing the pace, but Kyler Phillips does a really good job of fighting off of his back foot. Like, even while moving, he's throwing good shots. And then mix in the fact that he's a brown belt. Uh, he shows great competency when the fights do hit the ground. Apparently, he's been rolling since he was three years old. Uh, he's 25 now, so you're talking about over 22 years of experience on the jiu-jitsu mats. But obviously, you know, maybe sometimes people over-exaggerate the fact that uh, guys have been rolling since three years old. But at least, you know, they're, they're, they're privy to it. They know what's going on. And then, you know, as they're growing up, they, they've been around the jiu-jitsu gyms and obviously training themselves. And given the fact that he's a brown belt, right? He's a, he's a high-level dude. Now, I like what he's doing down there at, M at the MMA lab. He has a lot of guys around his weight class that are very helpful for him to, to put together a solid game plan, not to mention uh, John Crouch in his corner as well, right? You have um, Casey Kenny and Mario Bautista who are fighting on this card as well too. So you're expecting that all these guys are peaking at the same time. They're all giving each other really good work, and you got to believe that they're you know they're 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 putting together a solid game plan to beat a guy like Song Yudong. Now I think the game plan to beat Yudong is 
pretty much going into into play with what Kyler Phillips does, and that's you know move around a lot, uh, throw combinations as well too, um, and and continue to outpoint his opponent, and maybe mix in a couple of takedowns here and there as well. Whereas I feel like Song Yudong is just going to be continuously moving forward, throwing his heavy combinations. He's very light on his feet as well too. But again, I said his cardio issues are are a bit of a factor here that I think that a lot of people need to take into consideration. Um, so automatically, I'm already giving Kyler Phillips this third round if it reaches round three, right? Uh, Song Yudong has a ton of finishes, uh, so it is absolutely possible that I could potentially knock out Kyler Phillips here, but I'm not, you know, I, I'm not going to put too much stock on that. Um, you can't put too much stock into the standing KO, especially against a guy like Kyler Phillips who has yet to be knocked out in his professional MMA career. His only loss coming via decision, official loss, I should say, coming via decision. And he shows great movement on the feet. Uh, doesn't get hit the most, right? Like the, the Gabriel Silva fight is almost a blue, a closer blueprint of what we might see from Song Yudong in terms of, you know, moving forward, throwing combinations. Obviously, we believe that Yudong will be more slick on the feet, throw more combinations, and obviously throw much more heat behind his shots. But I still feel as though that uh, Kyler Phillips will give him a ton of trouble uh, in terms of, um, you know, just continuously moving uh staying on his bicycle staying on the outside of the octagon uh and, and just throwing combinations in return and then eventually maybe that third round just securing that third round by getting a takedown which we've seen is very uh you know possible given the the success that marlon vera and cody stamen had i kind of put kyler phillips in between both of those guys in terms of his wrestling abilities and ability to to get the fights to the ground um so i think that's more than enough for him to at least secure that it's all about whether Yudong is going to be able to put this guy's lights out early. Because if he does, then none of this third-run cardio thing matters, right? But I, I'm of the belief that Kyler Phillips will be able to stay away from those big shots. Use his kicks to kind of remain at range. Um, they're pretty much the same metric-wise, same height. But actually, uh, Kyler Phillips does have a 5-inch reach advantage here. Which I think will come into a huge play uh, with him keeping his distance, staying away from the big shots, and getting his own combinations off without getting countered with anything too brutal. So... I like Kyler here, man. I I, I lean him here. Uh, I'm a big Song Yudong fan. I think he has a very high ceiling. But until we see more from him rather than just moving forward, throwing combinations and, and being quick too, that's one thing we have to give him. He is definitely fast. But I feel like Kyler Phillips will be well prepared for a fighter like this. And he should do a good job of, again, keeping on the outside, getting his combinations off, and then securing that third round potentially with the takedown or even just you know keeping it on the feet and continuing continuing his uh, his movement. There's not much we can take from the Cameron Ellis fight because Cameron Ellis, the kid doesn't belong in the UFC. Let's be honest. That's why he was able to, you know, get him out of there relatively quickly. Um, but, uh, you know, from the Gabriel Silva fight, from the If Kandu fight, uh, I believe that was in LFA. I think that there's a ton of uh, promise for Califebs and what he brings to the table. And again, he's only 25 as well, right? He's a young guy. He's somebody that's going to continuously be making improvements on a fight-to-fight basis. But given what we've seen from both guys, I like the versatility that we got from uh, Kyler Phillips here. And I think that he'll be able to corral uh, Song Yudong for the majority of this fight and then secure a decision victory. So I'm going Kyler Phillips, and I think he takes this fight via decision. Dominic Cruz versus Casey Kenny. We got plus 110 on Dominic Cruz and minus 130 on Casey Kenny. Let's start off on the Dominic Cruz side of things. Who's coming off of two straight losses now. One to uh, Cody Garbrandt where he got completely outclassed over five rounds. And then he uh, loses to Henry Cejudo way back at UFC 249. That was last May, I believe. If I'm not mistaken, it was the first fight or first event back for the UFC from that whole COVID situation. But he loses that fight via KO in the second round. And we saw a really good... Uh, 
approach from Henry Cejudo in that fight, which was trying to slow down the movement of Dominic Cruz, landing a lot of leg kicks and then eventually landing a beautiful knee uh, just up the middle there, uh, cracks Cruz on the chin and then he follows up with a bunch of strikes to uh, get, the, get the finish in that fight. The Cody Garbrandt fight, that's one fight where I feel like the, the difference maker ended up being initially Cody Garbrandt. Uh, you know, sitting in the pocket and waiting for Dominic Cruz to come in and throw. Because every time he did, uh, he was met by a couple of punches uh, from uh, Dominic Cru- or from Cody Garbrandt. Uh, you know, a couple of combinations, a couple of leg kicks, and I feel like that really hindered um, Dominic Cruz's performance for the rest of the fight. That's where we saw the confidence in Cody Garbrandt really start to uh, you know blow up, and then he was able to take over the rest of the fight, pretty much almost walking down Dominic Cruz to a certain extent, but just landing combinations almost at will, more than we've ever seen against Dominic Cruz, right? He's only had three losses in his 25-fight career. Absolutely insane. The only other loss he had was to Uriah Faber way back in the day, uh, and then since then he's been able to avenge that loss twice in a row. Um, most recently, his third win over Uriah Faber was only three fights ago. And if you guys remember, that was UFC 199, the same night that Michael Bisming knocked out Luke Rockhold for the middleweight title. So that's over, if you guys are keeping count, that's over 60 pay-per-view UFC events ago that he only had his third fight, right? Over the last 10 years, he's only had seven fights. The guy has just been nagged with so many injuries and, and you know, if it's not as... Uh, groin it's his knee if it's not his knee it's his hand if it's not his hand it's the plantar fasciitis like it just continues to catch up to him and i feel really bad for him right you're talking about a guy like oh like 10 years ago he's 25 years old and if you were to tell him back then that you're only gonna have seven more fights over the next 10 years you know he'd be bummed out but he'd still go out there and give the best that he could because mentally he's a very strong uh very strong fighter a great analyst as well too that's something that's really shining when he's uh since he's taken up this spot in the in the commentary booth but the guy still has the to the the motivation to go out there and train on a regular basis. Again, he's only thirty five years old. He's going to be thirty six a couple of days after the fight. But uh, he still feels as though he has a lot to give to the game, and that he could absolutely go out there and just show these guys that he can still compete at relatively a high level. Now, the weird thing about his fight with Casey Kenny is that this is the first time he's fighting a guy that's not on the level of like T.J. Dillashaw, Uriah Faber, Cody Garbrandt, Henry Cejudo since, you know, five fights ago when he made his comeback after his initial uh, layoff and he feeds, uh, fights Takeo Mizugaki and puts him out within a minute. That's the first time we've ever seen uh, Dominic Cruz in that type of fashion where he goes out there and finishes this guy that quickly. More often than not, his fights are going the full 15 minutes or the 25 minutes because more often than not, he's fighting for a title or he's in the main event. Now, this is the first time in a long time that he's on the prelims uh, and uh, fighting a guy that's you know up and coming like Casey Kenny who himself might be maybe one or two wins away from a title shot himself if he's uh you know if he's successful against Dominic Cruz here but Cruz in that Suhudo fight still showed some decent movement he still showed he had a little bit in his in his footwork and that might be enough to actually get the win here against Casey Kenny now people want to read a lot into that Henry Suhudo fight but how are you going to go out there and compare a guy that's at Henry Suhudo's level and then take into consideration a guy like Casey Kenny who, you know, solid fighter. I think he's a good prospect. He's 16-2-1. He's only lost two times in his career, most notably to, most notably to um, Rob Devalishvili four fights ago. So is he at that level of a Dominic Cruz and the rest of these guys at the top of the bantamweight division? This fight should give us a good indication, but there's so many X factors, right? The, the step down in competition for Dominic Cruz, the, the layoff, the, the, the extended layoff, and all these types of things. There's so many X factors that it's totally... It's really hard to make a true conclusion on how this fight should truly go down. But then you go on to the Casey Kenny side of things, right? Since the Marab Devalishvili fight, he's had three wins. 
he beats Louis Smoka, where he uh, was getting almost pieced up to the body uh, for the first like two minutes of that fight, and then catches Louis Smoka on a beautiful counter, follows up with the guillotine choke, wins that fight. The Haliyala Tang fight, he was pretty much walk, uh, fighting a walking punching bag from the beginning of that fight because he was able to land his body kicks, and uh, there wasn't much that Adelaide was able to do in that fight. Uh, he he pretty much just ate him. Like I was surprised he did not stop him in that fight, but that that bruising on that body was absolutely serious. I was very surprised again that. Uh, uh, that uh, Haile Alateng was actually able to survive that. Again, great movement from Kenny, great distance management, good cerebral approach, not really overextending himself, but still finding the mark in terms of landing the body kicks and then following up with that left straight. The the way that I like to compare it is, is like somebody was using a broken controller and playing EA UFC, and the only punches and strikes that he could throw was that left kick or that left straight down the middle, and it was successful more often than not. So good on him in that fight against Alatang. He looked obviously like that minus 370 that he was that night. Then he goes out there and fights Nathaniel Ward on a relatively short notice, right? That, that fight was put together very, very soon. Uh, it was at a catch rate of 140 pounds. So I won't look too deep into that fight. But it didn't look the greatest in terms of when Nathaniel Ward was actually, uh, you know, giving uh, Casey Kenny a little bit of resistance there, right? We saw Casey slow down ever so slightly in that second round. And even in that third round, it seemed like uh, a little bit more difficult for him to go out there and put the game plan that he wanted together. He had his wrestling to kind of uh, bail him out there and, you know, eat some minutes off that clock. Uh, but I don't think he's going to have that advantage here against Dominic Cruz, who, you know, primarily a striker, but has a very good wrestling background as well, too. And we see it, you know, in full use against Henry Cejudo, too, who was, you know, trying to take him down and, and you know, got a takedown or two. But we saw Cruz scramble very well, get back to his feet and then start fighting at range just as he's most comfortable uh, doing. Now with Casey Kenny, he's not going to have that wrestling to really uh, lean on here against Dominic Cruz, and I think it's going to, you know, it's it's going to gas him out a little bit, uh, kind of swinging at air. I still feel like Dominic Cruz will have the footwork advantage here. I think he'll still make it a little bit harder for Casey Kenny to get his shots off. But of course, it's going to look great for Casey Kenny to be fighting a guy who's going to be standing in front of him like Nathaniel Wood was, like uh, Haile Ali Tang was. But when you're talking about Dominic Cruz, you're talking about a completely different level. Now, if Casey Kenny stands his ground and throws combinations in return, like uh, we saw from Cody Garbrandt, then maybe we see, uh, you know, Cruz in a little bit of trouble. But is that what Casey Kenny is truly known for, right? Like we were seeing Louis Smoka get off on him pretty easily without much resistance until he finally ate that counter. You know, it, it's 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 a tough ask. I, I, I find it hard to want to go out there and bet against Dominic Cruz, who's only lost, you know, three times in his career. He's 35 years old, so yeah, he's more so on the tail end of his career. And Casey Kenny is just on the rise and getting closer and closer to achieving, you know, the that top five, top seven status within the division. But I, I just can't get the, the best read on either side here, as I believe both guys have clear paths to victory for Casey Kenny. It's just, uh, you know, countering whenever Cruz comes in, maybe try to push the pace on him a little bit. Whereas Cruz, you know, just rely on that footwork, rely on Casey Kenny kind of blowing his wad, uh, throwing at air, and then countering at the proper opportunities whenever you're closing the distance. Now, if Kenny approaches this fight with, I don't think he'll be as successful with his body kicks as he was in his last couple fights. But if he starts to target that leg, just how Henry Cejudo did, then maybe uh, we'll see Dominic Cruz in a little bit more trouble. But that's not Casey Kenny's game, right? Casey Kenny mainly been showing uh, body kicks and, and good straight lefts. Um, 
decent combinations than obviously his wrestling. But Cruz still has something to give to the to the game, I think. And I don't think he'd be fighting still if he truly didn't believe he'd go out there and, and compete at a high level. Especially, you know, he I don't think he wants to truly uh, diminish his legacy either, you know, giving up losses to, to a guy like Casey Kenny. And again, Kenny can go out there and potentially be a bantamweight champion at some point. So maybe in the future, the get, having a loss to Kenny may not mean, uh, you know, uh, or weigh as badly on Cruz's legacy as it would today or this weekend if he does actually get upset. But uh, yeah, I think Cruz will still have enough in the tank here to to make it a very difficult fight for Kenny. And we could possibly see a, a quintessential um, Dominic Cruz performance here but I'm not willing to part ways with my money to, to find out I, I do favor him at that plus money I wouldn't be surprised if we see that money start to you know get a little bit higher or that those odds to get higher on Dominic Cruz here but uh, yeah I found my dog already on this card and I'm gonna be rolling with him but uh, with Dominic Cruz I think he wins this fight I think he wins by decision uh, and yeah yeah I got Dominic Cruz here to win this fight via decision Tiago Maheta Santos versus Alexander Rakic. We got minus 155 on Rakic and plus 135 on Maheta. Let's start off on the Maheta side here, who's coming off two straight losses. Obviously, the John Jones fight where he, I believe, tore both knees, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, sits out for a pre- uh, quite a long time. Comes back against a Glover Teixeira, which was a very, very tough test fight for him. Um, minus 240 comes into that fight, still getting a lot of public love. But then Glover just gave him that vet lesson here. I mean, continuously taking him down taking all the shots that Santos was throwing at him, uh, you know, and, and Santos just didn't really have a, a an answer for him off the back, right? He's not really known as being a jiu-jitsu guy. He's mainly a striker, and he was really almost helpless off of his back. Uh, but Glover, you know, we got to give his credit, right? He has a very top, uh, a heavy top game, a, a crushing top game, where he's able to go out there and, like, get these big takedowns and then just float full mount without even, you know, like, breaking a sweat or anything like that. So great performance from Glover Teixeira to nullify the striking of Tiago. And even in that third round, right, we see Tiago Santos hurt Glover Teixeira. Yeah, we see Glover, you know, while taking damage, still able to reverse the position and then get on top of Tiago Santos. And, you know, there's a lot of X-Factors going into that fight too, right? We had Tiago Santos coming off that huge knee injury, or knee injuries, I should say, uh, being off for as long as he was. But I think that people were just continuously, which is why I use minus 200, uh, minus 240, I should say. They they continue, continuously give uh, Tiago Santos and Anthony Smith and, and, and Dominic Reyes just that caveat that, oh, look, they went five rounds with John Jones. And, oh, look, Tiago Santos had a really close fight against him. So he should, you know, it should rub off on him for the rest of his fights. And that's not really how it works out, right? Uh, I put out a stat out there. The last four opponents of John Jones have gone on to, for a record of two and six. Not, not the not the nicest, right? I believe the only person to get victories in that time was Anthony Smith over uh, Gustafson and then uh, Devin Clark. All the other other three opponents, they haven't even gotten a victory yet. So very sketchy for sure. Um, so yeah, we we know what Thiago Santos' game is, right? Likes to go out there, uh, get his uh, get his tie boxing going. Good leg kicks from him as well too. And uh, even the way that he put out Jan Blahovic, which was his last win, uh, you know, beautiful counter there. We saw Blahovic crash forward, uh, throw a combination, and kind of leave his chin out there. Whereas we saw Thiago Santos just wait, just wait, step back, throw right, throw left, and it uh, stumbles Jan Blahovic and absolutely puts his lights out. And so great performance from him there. Then the Jimmy Manuel fight, right? absolute fire i believe that fight actually took place in toronto here and uh we saw him come out with his hand raising there but again jimmy manua alexander rakic knocked him out as well too and then the eric anders fight 
Very uh, short notice for both guys. Up a weight class. I believe that was his first fight at 205 as well too. Uh, and he completely just outlasts Eric Anders. Both guys heavily gassed, but Eric Anders just could not answer the bell after that fourth round or third round, I believe. But a very good win for Thiago Santos there as well too. Now, how he matches up against Rakic. Rakic, in my opinion, is one of those guys that are on the cusp of like reaching that top five to top three uh, in the UFC's light heavyweight division. We got Thiago Santos, 37 years old, right? I believe he's going to be 38 later this year. Um, but he, he, I believe he's at the end of his road. And having knee injuries at, at that age, not the best. Alexander Rakic, on the other hand, you're talking about a guy who's 29 years old, just turned 29, uh, and it has a really good stretch of victories, you know, outside of the Volkan Uzmir fight, which could have gone either way. If you guys check out uh, MMA decisions, I believe there's over 300 and something fan submissions, and that round two, it was like 57% Rakic and 43% for... Um, for Volkan Uzmir, so very, very close fight. Obviously, those calf kicks and leg kicks had a huge effect on uh, Rakic in that fight, so good on Volkan Uzmir to continuously attack that and think that that was the best uh, approach for, for winning that fight, and it was. You know, Rakic had some great success in that first round, and then he, you know, gave up that third round, in my opinion, another very close round, but uh, it all came down to that second round. Volkan did a good job, you know, moving forward, throwing his shots, uh, Rackers was landing some big shots too. I think the fact that Volkan was able to stuff the takedowns really was demoralizing for Rackage as well, right? In most of his fights, he's able to lean on that. The Justin Ledet fight, I think he like 30, 24 him on a, on a couple of scorecards, taking him down at will, uh, you know, mixing the calf kicks, the leg kicks of his own. So it's very, very impressive how he was able to do that. Then the Devin Clark fight, right? Uh, goes out there, gets rocked, and a lot of people want to lean on that fight as to why Tiago Santos is going to come out on top here. But since that fight, I think we've seen him pretty much, you know, not really take too much damage. Uh, you know, even though the, the Jimmy Manuel fight was only 47 seconds, the Volkan Uzmir fight, we didn't truly see him get hurt other than his calf. And then the Anthony Smith fight, just Smith couldn't get anything off. So I think Rakish has definitely learned from that Devin Clark fight you know keep that guard high and tight but i think that his grapple heavy style and you know he's very sound on the feet as well not to mention his calf kicks and his kicks alone right anthony smith came out after that fight saying that's the heaviest kicks i've ever felt in my career so that's got to mean something given that anthony smith has a, a plethora of uh, mma experience and has seen all types of opponents whereas racket he's singling out and saying this guy has probably the craziest amount uh, power of kicks that i've seen in my career or ever felt in my career so I think there's a lot of uh, upside here for Rakic, you know, mix in the striking, be very sound on the feet, wait for Thiago Santos to kind of overextend himself, and then let's start uh, searching for the takedowns, the wrestling. I truly believe he's going to be the stronger guy here. I feel like we'll still see Santos go out there and feel the uh, the effects of his uh, knee injury uh, from, you know, even the, the Glover Teixeira fight. I feel like that's just going to have an everlasting effect on him, especially at this age. Uh, Rakic, again, he has great kicks of his own too, right? Like, uh, Thiago Santos has good calf kicks and good leg kicks, but I think that Rakic might have a little bit of an edge there. Um, I I'm trying to be fair on both sides here because I feel like Santos, yeah, he does have the overall advantage when it comes to striking, but I think that Rakic definitely does some good things as well too and has a ton of power, but I think his, his ace in the hole though will be his strength and his wrestling. I think that's what it's going to come down to. I think we'll see him, you know, clinch up against Santos, drag this fight to the ground, um, hopefully close distance a lot better than uh, Glover Teixeira was doing in that fight. Uh, you know, minimize the amount of damage that's coming his way, close the distance, get Santos down, and then just go to work. Whether it's seeking a finish or whether it's just, you know, I, I hate to say it, but lay in praying like he was against Anthony Smith. But again, he, he, that fight was 
never stood up from my memory. I don't think the referee ever stopped, uh, stalled him and, and stood them up off of, uh, off of inactivity. Rakic was staying busy enough that the referee didn't feel the need to stand them up. So I feel like he'll be able to do the same thing here against Thiago Santos, who doesn't really show much off of his back, right? Not the greatest jiu-jitsu off of his back. Uh, he, he wants to keep the fight on the feet and he wants to spring, uh, swing them bungalows. Um, Rakic, on the other hand, I feel like he's going to have a little bit more of a methodical approach, a more cerebral approach, and he knows he's right there, right? This is a fight against Thiago Santos, a guy that could propel him into that top five, that top three, and, uh, you know, maybe within a fight or two, start fighting for that title. So, uh, yeah, I like uh, Rakic here. I, I like his approach. Uh, I like his strength. I like his youth. Uh, his explosiveness, his strength, uh, I probably said strength twice here, but that's how much I'm banging on him to be the much stronger fighter here and then obviously mixing that wrestling. Uh, I don't want to take too much from that Anthony Smith fight as I believe that like that, that Smith fight, he he seemed almost broken after Rakic initially dropped him with that calf kick and we just never saw much from uh, Anthony Smith after that. Whereas Thiago Santos, like he may look like a broken fighter, just as he did at the end of the second round against Glover, where he's just on the ground. His coaches almost have to pick him up and get him back onto the stool. And then he comes on in that third round and rocks Glover to share right away. Um, so you have to give him credit that he's always going to be in the fight. He's always going to try up until he probably gets taken down. And I think that Rakic will be successful in taking him down time and time again. You know, kind of gauges distance at first with his kicks. Uh, you know, he's going to have a two-inch reach advantage as well as a two-inch height advantage. The guy's a big boy. He's a big boy, Mr. Alexander Rakic. So uh, I think he's going to cause Thiago Santos a ton of trouble here. Santos, just, again, uh, Rakic just has to be very careful on the feet. Uh, keep that guard high. Uh, you know, be mindful of whatever is coming back his way from Santos. Uh, we've already saw Santos plant and, and drop uh, Blahovic, you know, while moving backwards. So as long as he keeps that in mind uh, and, and closes the distance and drags this fight to the ground, I think he has a very good shot of going out there and winning this fight via decision. And I'd almost be surprised if he finished Santos, if that's the approach that he takes. But I'm going to take uh, Rockets to win this fight via decision. I think it's just going to be grapple fest city, baby. So uh, pre-fight, it might seem like this fight is going to be fireworks. But I think we see Rockets slow this fight down, uh, minimize the threat that's coming his way from Tiago Santos, and cruise on to win a decision here. So I'll go with Rockets to win this fight via decision. Islam Mahachev versus Drew Dober. We got minus 335 on Islam and we got plus 275 on Drew Dober. Let's start off on the Islam side of things who we haven't seen since uh, I believe September of 2019 when he went up against Davy Hamosh at UFC 243 the same night that uh, Habib Nurmagomedov went out there and beat Dustin Poirier. Now Islam has been scheduled for a couple fights and even a main event against a guy like Rafael Dos Anjos unfortunately had to pull out. I believe some of it had to also do with um, Nurmagomedov's father passing away. But uh, Islam is right back at it. You know, he he's taking the torch from Khabib, who clearly wants to retire and, and just sit on the sidelines now. But they're putting all their eggs in the Islam Mahachev uh, basket. And I feel like he's more than willing to go out there and, and carry that. And I think he'll be very successful in doing so and, and replacing Khabib as one of the best fighters in the UFC. Now, we obviously know his one stumble, right? He gets knocked out by Adriano Martins, I believe, in his first couple fights within the UFC. Uh, and since then, he's just looked like an absolute world beater, right? Goes out there, uh, Nick Lance, Gleison Tebow, Cajun Johnson, Armand Sarukian, and Davy Hamosh. But we haven't really seen him face another striker like uh, a guy like Drew Dober. I think the last guy we actually saw him fight that was a decent enough striker was 
um, Mr. Adriano Martin. So I'm very interested to see how he deals with a guy like Drew Dober. However, I think Drew Dober is going to be a little bit too gun shy here. I think he's going to be um, feeling the threat of the takedown pretty much at all times. I feel like Makachev will be the one moving forward, uh, kind of setting the pace and the tone of the fight. And then whenever that takedown opens itself, I think he'll be able to go out there and secure said takedown. Now, the last fight for Drew Dober, where he fought Alexander Hernandez, he gave up three takedowns. One in the first round where we saw Hernandez do some good work from on top. And then in the second round, we saw Hernandez rocked, hurt badly plenty of times. And I think we just saw Drew Dober get a little bit too overzealous in those spots. And he gave up two takedowns uh, while Hernandez was, was hurt. Good on Drew Dober, though, for getting right back to his feet, putting the pressure on uh, Hernandez, and then putting him away in that second round. Beautiful standing TKO finish from Drew Dober. Probably the best he's ever looked, right? The fight before that against Nazra Hakpras knocks him out in one minute, comes in as a plus 275 dog, and says, fuck you guys. Stop disrespecting me. He's going to go out there, and he knocks that guy out. So he's coming off of three straight knockout wins, right? The one before that against Polo Reyes, where he starches him relatively quickly as well, too. And now there's this new resurgence for Drew Dober. There's this new love for Drew Dober, especially with him going into the uh, Hernandez fight as a minus 165 favorite. People are starting to recognize, okay, he's starting to level up his game. Team Elevation is definitely doing the good things for him and taking him to that next level. However, when you're going up against a guy like Islam Akhachev, it's just a completely different game, right? The Paulo Reyes fight, striker. Nazar Hakparas, striker. Hernandez, striker slash grappler, but still relies heavily on his athleticism, and Drew Dober was able to look through that. Like, after Hernandez took him down in that first round and Drew Dober got back to his feet relatively easily, you saw the, the morale of Hernandez almost take a dip, because that, at that point is when Drew Dober started to push the pace, stay in front of him, and dictate the pace. And that's where Hernandez truly started to falter. I just don't see him having that much success against Islam in doing so. Right, once he starts getting his combinations going, I think he leaves himself open for getting taken down. And Islam has so many different crafty types of takedowns that he should go out there and take down Hernandez with relative ease. Whether it's a, a body lock trip or or a single leg or a double leg up against the cage, Islam Makachev can get it done regardless where this fight goes. Now. Um, with Makachev, we saw him against Armand Suruki in a very close fight, but we do definitely have to side with Makachev in that that night. But that truly shows how good Saruki as well uh, is as well. And then the Davy Hamos fight, right? You don't see that fight really hit the ground until late uh, in that third round because uh, Islam just wants to play it on the feet, not really give too much respect to Davy Hamos in terms of taking this to the ground and and possibly getting submitted early. So. Let's wear out Hamosh. Let's move around. Let's land combinations. His striking is looking good from that southpaw position. And it was causing Davy Hamosh some issues. And then eventually in that third round, he gets it to the ground where he, the, the threat of the, the submission is just not as enough. You got Davy uh, breathing a little bit harder. You got him working a little bit harder. So he was able to grind out the rest of that fight. Against Drew Dober here, I think it, like the only threat from Dober is the, the striking. Can Dober truly get comfortable enough in the striking like he did against uh, Alexander Hernandez? I just don't think th- think so. I think the threat of the constant or the constant threat of the takedown being there, I think, is just going to weigh too much on him. He's not really going to get a shot. He might get comfortable a little bit, but then I think that's when the shot comes from Makachev and we see him kind of ride him out. But I think that we'll see uh, Makachev actually get a submission here. 
Now we've seen Drew Dober, I believe his last three losses have come via submission. And I think that the the, the advantage that Makachev will have on the ground will open up those submissions for him. Whether it's an arm triangle choke, an arm bar triangle choke, whatever it is, I feel like we'll see him go out and get that kill. And Makachev, he's got to get to a point where he starts pushing it, right? If you guys remember early in Khabib's career, a lot of people were just like, ah, oh, he's boring. Yeah, he's undefeated. He looks great and he's dominating these guys, but he's boring. And that's kind of the tag that a lot of people are putting on Makachev right now. Just wait, right? Let, let this guy get a little bit more comfortable. And now that he's comfortable, again, he's been off for a year and a couple months now. But I think as he gets fights under his belt, he's going to get more comfortable. He'll be fine making a, uh, taking a little bit more risks. And I think that we'll see that here even against Drew Dober, where he has a significant uh, grappling advantage. And I find it very hard to believe that Drew Dober will be able to knock him out. So, uh, yeah, I'm going with Makachev here. The line is not too wide. Makachev is that good. He might even close as a minus 400, a minus 500 favorite once his fight goes down. So, yeah, I think he's a fine parlay piece at minus 335. That grappling discrepancy is just going to be so wide. And the fact that Drew Dober hasn't really fought a wrestler to his level as of late, I think that's um, uh, kind of weighing on people's minds as to maybe Drew Dober is a live underdog here. Last thing I'll say, if you guys go back and look at the Benio Darius fight, we see Drew Dober have a ton of success on the feet um, with Darius, who's just a little bit too wild at times, and who gets clipped in almost every single one of his fights. But then you see Darius have a lot of success with in the second round with getting the fight to the ground. In the first round, he struggles because he's trying to muscle the takedowns. Whereas Makachev, you're going to get a more technical takedown. You're not going to get the body lock and try to just try to tumble Drew Dober over. You're going to get the body lock. You're going to get a trip with it. Or you're just going to get a single leg or a double leg. Whatever it may be, Makachev will be able to hit it. So I, I see the, the spot for Drew Dober where he could go out there and possibly get his hands going. Maybe this might be something he implements in this game. Maybe it's the calf kick, right? Maybe he whips it out there quick enough that Makachev's not able to really catch it. And maybe he follows up with something behind it in terms of an uppercut or something like that. And I think that would probably be the way for Dober to go, right? Try to debilitate the, the forward movement of Makachev and that's by attacking that calf. A lot of gyms are taking that under their wing now. And I wouldn't be surprised if Dober truly sees that, okay, this has got to be the way that I beat this guy. But... We haven't seen it to date. He's a good leg kicker, but he isn't really a calf kicker. And how successful is he going to do, be doing that against Makachev over and over again? At a certain point, Makachev is going to be able to catch that kick and get this fight to the ground. So I like Makachev. I think he wins this fight by, by uh, submission as well. So I wouldn't mind taking a little bit of a poke at the submission prop. Let me just pull that up and see exactly what that is. Uh, Makachev by submission is plus 450. I think there's some uh, there's there's definitely some value there, and I wouldn't mind taking a little bit of a, a sprinkle on it. But I do like Makachev here. I think he returns very successfully. And unfortunately for Drew Dober, this is just the unfortunate path that he had to take to get to the top. And unfortunately for him, it's it's not Makachev standing in front of him. So I'm going with Islam here, and I'm taking him to win this fight via decision, or sorry, uh, submission. What did I say decision for? It's not Makachev to win this fight via submission, round one or two. Up next is the first title fight in our triple header that we have for UFC 259, and it's a bantamweight scrap between Pyotr Jan and Aljamain Sterling. I believe this is the first title defense for Pyotr Jan, and I'm very much looking forward to it. This is a very stiff test and a different awkward style that we haven't seen Jan fight up until this point in the UFC, so I'm very much looking forward to seeing how this one uh, transpires. So we got minus 130 for Pyotr Jan uh, as of today, which is uh, Friday, the f the week before fight week, uh, and we got plus, one uh, plus 110 on Aljamain Sterling. And 
Uh, we'll start off on the Purian side of things, right? He's 15-1 coming off that victory over Jose Aldo, where they, I believe, uh, fought for the vacant strap. That was after uh, Henry Suhudo had retired, quote-unquote. Maybe he comes back after he sees uh, Jan maybe defend a couple times or another challenger go out there and defend a couple times as well, too. But uh, since coming to the UFC, he's been on, uh, you know, nothing but wins. Teruto Ishihara, Jinsu Sun, Douglas Silva, Dion George, John Dodson, Jimmy Rivera, Uriah Faber, and Jose Aldo. Solid wins, solid stretch to lead up to that title shot and eventually uh, capturing that title. Uh, but he does show some flaws in that that I feel like Aljamain Sterling could absolutely exploit. Now, the fight that a lot of people want to go back and watch for uh, Piotr Jan in preparation for Aljamain Sterling is the Magomed Magomedov fights, right? I believe the first time they fought, they were 23. The next time, they were 24 or 25. Uh, but the first time Mustafaev, or sorry, uh, Magomedov got the better of him. It was a split decision victory for him, but it seemed like the wrestling of Magomedov was kind of the, the deciding factor in that fight. Very much back and forth. And once you watch that fight, you really realize that Purion's not just a striker. Like, the guy has decent jiu-jitsu off of his back, throwing up triangles, throwing up arm bars. Uh, didn't obviously complete any in that fight, but it showed that he was still very uh, dangerous, even off of his back, and not just one of those guys that's just going to settle off of his back. Uh, so, you know, amazing fight there. Uh, loses that fight, beats uh, Ed Arthur, and then comes back pretty much immediately uh, so roughly an a-, a year after they had first fought, um, uh, Pyrion wins a fight, Magomed Magomedov wins a fight, and they rematch once again, and another barn burner, an amazing fight. But what we see is a lot more improvement from Pyrion in terms of the grappling realm. We see him staying on the feet a little bit more. We see him stuffing takedowns, and then we see the the will of Magomedov kind of start to break, not to the point of where it's completely shattered or anything like that, but you see the fact that he's not able to get the fight to the ground as much as he'd like to. And Pyrion is really getting his strikes off. And he's the one kind of dictating the pace in that fight. So great improvements from Pyrion in that fight. And I was very, very impressed with what we saw there. Then we saw him go out there, defend the title once, and then get signed to the UFC. And truth be told, given what we saw in his ACB career, he should have just gotten a title shot within his first or second fight in the UFC. But the 135-pound division is very, very stacked. Having to go through guys like Douglas Silva, Dion Drage, John Dodson, Jimmy Rivera, and Uriah Faber en route to a title shot is solid, albeit the Uriah Faber as your last fight before a title shot, especially in 2019. Probably not the best look, but it is what it is. Gets a, gets a solid fight against a veteran under his belt, so that's a that's a good win for him there, especially finishing him as well the way that he did. Uriah Faber is not somebody that we see get finished often, uh, so that was a, a good notch to have on his belt. But the Jimmy Rivera fight did lead to some questions, right? There were large parts of... Uh, inactivity for Pyrion, where he's just like uh, kind of studying Jimmy a little bit too much, while Jimmy's the one getting the shots off, moving in and out, uh, had great f- uh, head movement and good footwork on his uh, part, and was pretty much winning the first and the second round up until the last like 10 to 15 seconds, where he pretty much just got stuck up against the cage and then got dropped by Pyrion by a, by a pinpoint strike. And it literally, came, I truly believe, it came down to those two strikes. The, the two that dropped him at the end of the first and the second round. Now, that is more of a Jimmy Rivera problem than it is a Piotr Jan problem, but true uh, handicappers and true anal- uh, uh, analysts will see this uh, and see, okay, you know, even though Piotr Jan won this fight and seemingly dominant because he dropped him twice, there were still some flaws in that performance that, uh, you know, other people can take advantage of. Then you kind of see it in the Jose Aldo fight, right? You see Jose Aldo have some success in that in the first couple rounds. And that's more so due to the inactivity of Pyrion, who's 
more so in like that downloading mode and kind of just giving away rounds and giving away minutes, waiting for the proper opportunity to, to lunge at his opponents and really to open up and start attacking. And he can't be doing that against a guy like Aljamain Sterling because, you know, two or three rounds into the fight, before you know it, you're behind and you got to start really putting it on him and start to, you know, get your get your uh, rounds back and get your minutes back. And that, that could be his downfall in this fight if he's not able to put away Aljamain Sterling, who seems to be the more active fighter at times. Right, Aljo is not the most technical striker. Obviously, Purion hasn't beaten that aspect. He's way crisper, way sharper with his strikes. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, Aljamain Sterling is a little bit more funky. Hence the Funk Master uh, nickname that he has and that persona that he has. You know, he kicks well from the outside, stays active enough, cuts angles very well too. We see him a lot more defensively sound now. It almost seems after his knockout to Marlon Moraes, where he's not taking the most crazy amounts of shots. He's doing enough to just stay out of the range of his opponents. Uh, in terms of the range, uh, I do want to bring that up. So we got 5'7", 67-inch reach for Purion. And then we got 5'7", 71-inch reach for uh, Aljamain Sterling. So he's going to have roughly a 4-inch reach advantage there. But his kicks is, are obviously going to be a huge uh, factor in, in that fight as well too. Now Aljamain Sterling, Sterling's fight against Pure, uh, Pedro Munoz is where we saw a potential key that could help Purion win this fight, which is slow down Aljo. And by doing that, I mean chopping calf kicks. And that's not a huge part of Purion's game. He's a kicker. He's not necessarily a calf kicker. But if he adopts that for this fight, I think he could have some good success in terms of uh, immobilizing Aljamain Sterling, not getting him to move as much and kind of slowing him down, and then hopefully catching him up with his hands. Uh, but to date, that's not something you can say that uh, Yan will go out there and absolutely implement in his game. Now Aljo, like I, like I was talking about earlier, kicks very well, moves very well, uh, and then when he has his opponents in trouble, he doesn't overexert himself, right? He he stays on the outside, like the, the fight against Jimmy Rivera where he's just kicking him up against the cage. Uh, I think he hurt him. I can't remember if it was a punch or, or a kick to the body, but he had this instance where he had Jimmy up against the cage, and he's just staying at the perfect range, throwing his shots and then getting out of the way of Rivera's shots, throwing his shots, getting out of the way. And it was just such a beautiful sequence where you saw him dish out so much damage, and especially with his hands, which are secondary, in my opinion, to his kicks when it comes to the striking realm. And then you mix in the grappling, right? Then you mix in that that crazy backpack pressure that uh, and grip that Aljamain shows uh, on the ground. Probably the better, obviously the better jiu-jitsu here, uh, better offensive jiu-jitsu as well too. Uh, but I don't necessarily think that he just needs that wrestling to be Pyotr Jan. And I think that if you hear that uh, throughout this fight week, uh, that people are saying that he needs to wrestle to win this fight. I think those people are off. Sure, it would be great if... It would be great if he was able to land a couple takedowns. But I think just him fainting takedowns, clinching, um, just mixing the game up as much as possible truly helps the rest of his game, which is getting that kicking game off, you know, making Jan start to bite on feints or something like that. But bringing in that whole game where you're, you're fainting takedowns, where you're fainting uh, clinch positions, um, you know, uh, maybe even landing a couple takedowns and being successful in those clinch positions, that will very much help him win this fight over an entire of 25 minutes as I find it kind of hard to believe that he'll be able to finish Pyrion outside of a possible submission a la the, the Corey Sandhagen fight, right? So I can't believe I'm going to say it, but I'm actually on the Aljamain Sterling train here, but I don't know if I'm going to be actually be betting against uh, Pyrion here. It's so tough to go to the betting window and bet against a guy like Pyrion who just has that OG gangster mentality of just 
you know, having a, a crazy striking game plan, uh, absolutely insane Muay Thai, and the way that he just baits some certain guys into his uh, into his combinations is just insane. So uh, I like what we see from Pierre Dion, but I just feel like he gives away a little bit too much time. And if this fight does go 25 minutes, I could see Sterling pulling away with it just off of volume alone. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm leaning with Sterling here. I'll go with him to win by decision. And with, with that said, I still want to see what he looks like in rounds four and five if he does get extended there, right? The Jimmy Rivera fight, he was running laps around the fight after that 15th minute mark. But the Pedro Munoz fight, it seemed like he was wearing it a little bit more. But that was a fight where he was uh, kind of goaded into fighting a little bit more than he did in the Jimmy Rivera fight. He's definitely going to have to fight in this Pierre Yan fight. So how his cardio looks in four and five is going to be very important. But I'm thinking that it's going to be good. Like, I'm, like he hasn't shown massive cardio dumps in the past. At least, uh, you know, maybe earlier in his career he did. But as of late, he's been showing decent enough cardio that makes me believe that he should be able to go 25 minutes without any issues. So I'm going Aljo here. I'll go by decision. Not 100% sure if I'll make it a bet at this time. Uh, curious to see how the line widens or or closes uh, as fight week progresses. But I'm going to be on the Aljo train here. And I think he wins this fight via decision. And new bantamweight champion Aljamain Sterling. Next up, we got the second title fight in our triple header for the the titles that we got for UFC 259, and it's a women's featherweight battle between Amanda Nunes, uh, long considered the GOAT at this point in time, against Megan Anderson now, uh, who's finally deserved a title shot after it seems that's what the UFC has wanted for her ever since she's come into the UFC. Right? She um. She goes out there, loses her first fight to Holly Holm. Huge step up compared to who she's fighting prior uh, in the Invictus scene. I think her last opponent before was a 44-year-old Charmaine Tweet. Then you step in against uh, you know a Holly Holm that's still close enough to her prime to go out there and showcase a full MMA game, and that's exactly what we saw that night. You know, she she got cracked a couple of times by Megan Anderson, and that quickly changed her into her Izzy style wrestling, and she was very successful in doing so, getting this fight to the ground over and over again. And that's not a style that you see often from Holly home so there must have been a little bit of a sting behind that uh, megan anderson shot that really made holly home want to change into a wrestler and she was successful in doing so after that she gets katzangano we all remember that fight in terms of very weird um uh, it was like a head kick that eventually it was like her her toenail that scratched the eye of of katzangano or just landed right in the eye very unfortunate sequence there for zangano uh, i remember having the under two and a half in that fight because i was back in zangano very very hard uh but i'm like why back Zingano when I think she's going to finish her by sub so I might as well just take the under two and a half and thank god I did because freak shit happens like that which is a reminder why you should not be uh parlaying uh minus 1100 favorites like Nunes even though she is the greatest woman of all time weird shit definitely can like that can happen and you don't want to you don't want to try to add a cherry on top and a minus 1100 cherry on top of a parlay because it just does not add that significant of value especially given how wacky and volatile a sport as mma so uh by all means i believe nunez wins this fight just don't parlay her at this point in time uh after that zingano fight we see the felicia spencer fight where we see felicia get her down to the ground pretty easily and then pull off her rear naked choke and then after that she goes out there and beats two ufc newcomers she goes out there and beats zara Farron relatively easily with the triangle choke uh and then the normal dumont fight if i'm not mistaken normal was coming off a significant layoff before coming into that fight uh yeah so she fought in yeah she was roughly off for a year and a half that makes her UFC debut against Megan Anderson. Uh, she ends up losing that fight. And even 
uh, that that was a fight that was above her weight class. Now we see Norma Dumont, you know, her last time she fought Ashley Evan Smith uh, and won in the bantamweight division. So she was definitely outmatched in terms of size in the in the Megan Anderson fight. Now, luckily for Megan Anderson, the UFC is like, you know what? Maybe you're ready for a title shot now. Or given the fact that there's nobody else in the featherweight division, uh, you're you're just next in line. So. Uh, you know, kudos to her for, for getting the title shot, but she's just absolutely outmatched in this fight, right? The only chance I give her of winning this fight is knocking out Nunes with some fluke Hail Mary shot, and it's a possibility, but uh, given the, the implied odds, so the last time I looked at her was at like plus 1465 uh, for Megan Anderson to get a knockout. Let's see what it's currently at now. Uh, Anderson by KO is currently sitting at... We got sub, but we don't have KO. For some reason, it seems like Best Fight Odds has switched up their, their stuff. All right, plus 1485 for Anderson to win by KO, which is just over a 6% chance that they're giving her. Um, I did toy with the idea of just putting 0.1% on Anderson to win, given how crazy of a sport that MMA is. But then once you watch the tape, it's just like she doesn't even throw her strikes with the most discipline or technique, I should say. Uh, she's she's a little stiff at times. Um yeah, it just seems like an easy path to victory for Nunes to take this fight to the ground and go for a submission. And I don't think she's going to face as much retaliation as she did, or resistance, I should say, as she did when she fought a girl like Jermaine Durandamy uh, when she got her on the ground. Um, whereas I think Nunes will be able to kind of just slice through her like butter. Now, I told this to my Patreon members already, but I think that the lock of the night play for UFC 259 would easily be the under 2.5 in this fight, which is around that minus 220 range. Even if you want to get even, uh, you know, uh, crazier than that, you can say fight does not start round three. And I believe the last time I checked that uh, fight does not start round three is minus 175. I think that's like hella value. Either we get an early uh, Anderson KO if she wins at all, or we get Nunes pretty much taking her down, softening her up in that first round, and then in the second round pulling off a submission or a ground and pound of some sort. I just think it's going to be too easy for Nunes to, to snatch it up. Now, you know, Anderson obviously training over there with Jamie, James Krause, uh, I believe since 2015. So they've been together and training together now for about uh, six years. But you don't really see a huge transformation, right? Like, what can you take away from the Zara Farron fight other than that, you know, she didn't like getting pressured when Farron just came right out of the bat or right out the gate like a bat out of hell, right? Uh, pretty much uh, swarmed her right away, pushed her up against the cage, and then was easily reversed as Megan Anderson was easily the, the, the stronger woman in that fight drags the fight to the ground, and then Farron just looks like a fish out of water on her back. Um, then the, the Norma Dumont fight, right? Norma just clinches her up against the cage and starts kneeing her to the legs, and, it, you know, you don't see much from Megan Anderson in those situations. You just see Norma pushing her up against the cage and gathering some control time, and then uh, we, we see them separate. Megan Anderson lands one shot, plants uh, Dumont on her butt, and in my opinion, you could have let that fight go on a little bit longer, right? Um... It seemed like Kevin McDonald just jumped in right away as soon as she uh, hit the ground. But like she seemed like she had her faculties kind of about her, uh, but they just stopped her right away. But again, you, you can't just take away this thing like, oh my God, Megan Anderson is this crazy knockout artist. She's Francis Ngannou of the 145-pound women's division. It's not like that at all. You don't get any of that type of feeling when you watch her fight. I mean, if anything, like we've seen Nunes get cracked harder by Jermaine Duranamy, harder than she's going to get cracked by uh, Cyborg and stuff like that, right? So I just don't see where 
the the advantages for Megan Anderson comes here other than her size. Maybe she's slightly stronger, but I just think that the technique that Nunes will bring to the table with her takedowns is going to be too much for her. So yeah, I side with Nunes here, and I shouldn't be making this breakdown as long-winded as it is, but it truly is uh, a very easy spot for her to go out there and win this fight. Um, uh, you know, if you want to go round one Nunes plus 145, that's not a bad spot. Round two Nunes plus 300, I think that's not a bad spot. Um, but yeah, I think Nunes dominates this fight no matter where it goes. But I think she's going to take the pa- uh, path of least resistance, would be to, which would be to get this fight to the ground and, uh, and pretty much just seek out a choke, rear naked choke, whatever it may be. But I think she'll find that submission, uh, you know, no later than the second round. So I'll go with uh, Amanda Nunes to win this fight via submission. Time for the main event and the third title fight in this triple header that we have for UFC 259. We have Jan Blachowicz defending his title for the first time against a middleweight champion, Israel Adesanya, who's coming up in a weight uh, to go out there and be another consecutive simultaneous champion, whatever the fuck you want to call it. But it seems to be a trend over the last several years, ever since Conor McGregor captured the featherweight and the lightweight title way back at UFC 205. And now it's just becoming a trend. It, 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 I feel like the the flair behind it is just leaving it, especially when you got a guy in Jan Blahovich who just won the title, hasn't even defended it against anybody. And Israel Adesanya, I think he's defended it twice now. Three times, actually. Uh, well, he unified it against Whitaker, beat Yoel Romero, beat Paulo Costa, so he's only defended it twice. I mean, I know there might may not be the craziest amount of contenders out there for him, but still, to go up and wait just so quickly... Yeah, it doesn't really so right with me. Anyway, it is what it is. We got the fight this weekend. Can't really complain too much about that. It should still be a great fight. So we got minus 230 on the middleweight champion, Israel Adesanya, and plus 190 on Jan Blahovic. And the Blahovic side is the side that I do want to start on here. So we're talking about a 36-year-old now in uh, Jan Blahovic. Is he 36? Yeah, he's 38, actually. 38 years old, uh, Jan Blahovic. And he's going on the best run that he's gone on in his ty- pretty much in his entire career. Uh beats Luke Rock all the way back at UFC 239, beats uh, Jacare Souza in a headlining spot. That was a split decision victory. Then he beats uh, Corey Anderson in a headlining spot, knocks him out in the first round, and knocks out Dominic Reyes. The same night, Israel Adesanya defended his title against um, uh, Paulo Costa. Uh, so he finishes Dominic Reyes in the second round. And it's something that he did very well in that fight against Dominic Reyes is he uses a left kick to the body which just pretty much uh wounded up dominic reyes right off the bat i think within the first two or three kicks you could see a very prominent bruising mark on uh the body of uh dominic reyes and that definitely had a factor in how he performed for the rest of the fight as we saw Blahovich go out there open up his striking a little bit more with his hands in the second round and then one of them just caught him clean on the nose you could see the damage immediately on Dominic Reyes's face you see his neck his nose twisting all sorts of ways and then Blahovich continues to follow up and eventually finishes him with the beautiful combination drops him uh but great work from him there even in the Corey Anderson fight beautiful right hook to put Corey Anderson out it's crazy this this reinvention of you know Blahovich that we've been seeing as of late like you're talking about a guy who dropped a majority decision to Patrick Cummins over four years ago uh and then goes on a four-fan winning streak over Devin Clark Jared Kananir Jimmy Manoa Nikita Krilov uh when he welcomed Krilov back to the UFC then he drops a fight to uh, Tiago Santos where he gets finished in the third round and then he comes back goes on his four-fight winning streak and then captures the title 
Now, he has that Polish power. I think he definitely has some power in his hands. Uh, he closes the distance very well, too, when he is trying to go in with the strikes. And he has a very high tight guard, which really helps him, uh, you know, defend on any type of counter strikes that are coming back his way. Now, he's a big dude as well, right? In terms of metrics, we're talking about 6'2 with the 78-inch reach. I think Adesanya hasn't beat, though, uh, with the 6'4, 80-inch reach. But again, how is he putting that weight on? That's, a, that's another question that needs to be answered tonight or, or this weekend. With Blahovich, I feel like people are almost overlooking this guy as Israel Adesanya has this mythical creature image that a lot of people don't think that anybody could beat this guy, right? And for good reason, right? He's 20-0 at this point in time, and nobody has been able to defeat him in the MMA realm where he has uh, obviously gotten knocked out in the kickboxing realm before. But in terms of MMA, almost a flawless performance. Um, I feel like Blahovich could cause some issues here. Which is why I'm not so keen on going out there and betting Israel Adesanya at the minus 230 line. Now, most people might call me crazy thinking that this is free money, but there's no such thing as free money in MMA. You know what I mean? I, I feel like uh, if people continue to overlook a guy like Blahovich, just as he's been overlooked in pretty much every single fight over the last little while, he's going to come out there and stun you guys. Um, you know, given his power, given his black belt in jiu-jitsu, which should definitely give him an advantage here over the purple belt in, uh, in Israel Adesanya, it's his power and his strength as well, too, that should have an issue. Uh, you know, people can, you know, point at the uh, Paulo Costa fight as saying, oh, that guy was pretty much light heavyweight that he got dealt with. But Blahovich brings a whole different realm to this game. You know what I mean? Like he's he's a he's a bona fide light heavyweight that is very, uh, very, I'd say very durable as well too you know i mean i think that he he could be able to take the shots of izzy here izzy might want to be a little bit more surgical with his approach here uh and really make sure that he minds his p's and q's whenever blahovich tries to close the distance and tries to get his strikes off now i don't think that this is going to be as easy as people thinking that blahovich is going to continuously blitz forward and israel adesanya is just going to piece him apart on these counters and really put him out that way i think blahovich will be able to eat the shots that are coming his way from adesanya so this will need to be more of a you know, a five-round fight for Adesanya to go out there and get his uh, to get his hand raised. Now, the later this fight goes, maybe those openings open up a little bit more, and we see the Adesanya's uh, wizardry come to fruition, and he goes out there and actually knocks out Blahovich. But I think that this fight goes over that one and a half mark. I think it goes over that two and a half mark. And if anybody finishes earlier than that, I almost believe that it would be Blahovich. Like I think he has that power to to hurt and stun uh, Adesanya given the fact that you know he, he's a big dude himself too uh, again when he closes distance he defends very well uh, and then when he gets his shots off it's not just like one or two shots sometimes he follows up with three or four shots uh, which usually you know the, the third or fourth shot usually catches his opponents off guard and th those are the ones that are a little bit more damaging so uh, I still think Adesanya wins here, but I, I think people are just overlooking Blahovich too much. I'm going to be staying away from this fight from a betting perspective. Maybe look at the over one and a half. I think the line is set at two and a half. I'd be comfortable with the over there. But, uh, you know, Adesanya has had some issues of his own. Like the, the Calvin Gaslam fight really sticks out to me. And I know it's been a couple fights since then, and we haven't really seen Adesanya in any trouble since that fight. But it just... Something just glares out to me that, you know, if Gaslam was able to close that distance, land the shots that he did to hurt Adesanya, feels like to me, you know, this is the first time with Adesanya up at 205 pounds that, you know, this is the first time he felt a 205 or punch him the way that Blahovich is going to be able to punch him. And this is the first time he's going to be dealing with a guy closing the distance the way that Blahovich does. So it's, it, there's a lot of sketchy spots here 
in this uh, in this fight. But I do like Adesanya though, right? You, it's hard to overlook his masterful technique and his and his wizardry when it comes to the striking game. The guy sets traps. His feints are phenomenal. Uh, he's able to kind of goad you into one thing and then hit you with something else. Um, but I, I just think it's going to be much tougher than people expect. I expect either a later finish for Adesanya or a decision victory here. But uh, I don't think uh, Blahovich is going to go down without a fight. And um, he definitely has the power to make this uh, a very tough fight for Adesanya, especially if, if he's able to catch that chin and drop him. But uh, I think at the end of the day, uh, Adesanya comes out of this fight pretty much unscathed and uh, you know picks up that title. Um, another angle that I do want to break down before I wrap this thing up is the grappling, right? The only time we've really seen Adesanya on the ground is, uh, I think Gaslam got him down, but pretty much right away he's like scooting his butt, butt back to the cage, getting his ass right back up and getting back into the distance. Or even I believe in that fifth round where Gaslam was hurt, got Adesanya down, but right away what do we see from Adesanya? Throws up a triangle, throws up an armbar. The guy's just very active and aware of where he's at in the cage, especially in grappling realms. So, uh, I think his awareness very much helps him in staying out of bad positions. And I don't believe that Blahovic will be able to get him to those positions. My concern is how strong will Blahovic truly be against Adesanya here? How did Adesanya put on that weight? Is that weight going to slow him down? Is that weight going to catch up to him in cardio later in the fight? So given all the, the question marks that we have here, uh, mostly on the Adesanya part, and I don't care how goat of a fighter you guys think this guy is, uh, everybody, you know, that, that image gets shattered at one point or a time. And Blahovich has been doing a really good job in terms of turning guys back when he's not supposed to be doing so. So, uh, again, I'll, I'll go with Adesanya's side, given his 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 prowess in the striking realm. I I, I hope that he's able to withstand the power of Blahovich because Blahovich will definitely land on him. It's not going to look like the Matrix where Adesanya is dodging everything that he throws at him. Like, Adesanya still gets hit. That's that's something people just overlook. Like, yeah, he he's good at nullifying the amount of damage coming his way, but he still gets hit. And if he gets hit by the power of Blahovich, I'm I'm concerned. Let's just put it that way. But I do think that Adesanya takes this fight. Um, you know, hopefully he sticks with the calf kicks that he brought into the Paulo Costa fight. I think that will allow him to have a much easier fight here. And if he's able to nullify the power that's coming his way from Blahovich by taking away the base which is where most of the power should be coming from then he should be able to cruise for the rest of the fight maybe get a third or fourth round stoppage but yeah I'll, I'll go with uh, I'll go with Adesanya here he's gonna have to be very careful about the counters that are coming his way too especially when he's when he's throwing his kicks because Blahovich can close distance pretty quickly and with a lot of power but I think that Adesanya does what, you know, his masterful performance, uh, props to Eugene Behrman. They're probably going to put together a really good game plan here to uh, nullify whatever Blahovich is throwing at them. But I'll go with the Adesanya side. And I'm going to take him to win by, I want to say fourth or fifth round stoppage. Um, but even decision comes into my mind. So just to be on the safe side, let's go, um, let's go Adesanya, fifth round TKO. And those are the breakdowns. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Apologies for the delay in getting this episode out. Your boy wanted to make sure he did his due diligence for all 15 fights for you guys. Uh, but I will be getting right to work on the next week's event. And hopefully can get it out for you guys on the Monday as usual. But appreciate the support. Make sure you guys like and subscribe to the video if you haven't already. And uh, check out Coolbet, coolbet.com, promo code MMALOTN2. And the Patreon, as always, the link is in the description below. Shout out to everybody that shows your boy support on a weekly basis. Man, 
Oh, I, I love doing this stuff for you guys. So I'll see you guys throughout the week. Obviously, Thursday, propping you up at 8 p.m. Eastern with me and Cody. Friday, final way at 9 p.m. Eastern with me and um, the rest of the odds crew. Saturday, 1 p.m. Eastern um, for the, the MMA Lockcast Live. And then also we'll be doing a pre-lock show on Sal Vetri's channel. I believe that's going to be kicking off at 6 p.m. It's about an hour before the lock for uh, DraftKings. But I'll be joined by a very special guest. I'm very much looking forward to that. Uh, I believe the first pre-lock show was a massive success with uh, me and Brett Apley before UFC 258. So I'm hoping to bring you guys similar experience for UFC 259 with a different guest this time around. Very much looking forward to it. So I hope to see you guys throughout the week. And uh, yeah, good luck on your bets this weekend. Let's cast some bets. Let's make some money and let's try to beat these bookies and try to get back on track. Your boy's trying to get back on track and I'm hoping we can do that this weekend. So once again, good luck on your bets and I'll see you guys throughout the week.